Hello, welcome back to the 1980s Movie Graveyard. We have a real gem tonight. Everybody, you know me, this is the GOAT. I'm here with the main man who's like really digging out these crusty classics from the basement of the graveyard. I'm here with Trev 3K. Trev, thanks for joining me. And once again, thank you for, you know, having the spirit of the 80s doing the show in your hockey mask. It's really cool. Oh, no problem. Speaking of the 80s, I love when you call me the main man because it takes it makes me think I'm Lobo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we tell the folks what, you know, kind of, you know, where you're coming from with this pick, because this is your pick and I'm glad you picked it because you actually exposed me to a gym here that I wasn't really hip to. Yeah, which was really surprising to me. But uh, so where this pick came from uh, without giving it away yet, as if people don't know what it is when they download the episode. But um, (laughs) but uh, no, this is I think I might have mentioned this when we did the burbs back uh, a while ago that this is this is another film like that where when I was growing up. I watched this movie so many times as a kid. It's because, as I said, you know, back when HBO and all that first started, they had a pretty limited pool of movies. Yeah. And they would show the same films over and over and over again. And you would end up watching a lot of the same movies over and over. And especially, you know, the hour and a half comedies because they're really easy and fun to watch and light. And this was just one. I mean, it's it's, it's not that it's a great movie anyways, I think. A really good, um, probably somewhat undervalued comedy. But oh, when time. you watch it. You know, a hundred times as a kid, too, just the repetition of it has always stuck with me. And today I still think of this as one of my top, you know, I don't know if I was going to say top ten, but definitely top ten comedies of all time. And it really is up there. It is one of the movies I've memorized, and it it's just always takes me back to my happy place, you know. Um, and I would argue that it's probably the best movie ever made based on a board game. Sorry, oh, Battleship. By far. I mean, Battleship's <laughs> good. But I that, actually do like Battleship. But will you agree with me, though, Trev, in that Battleship is the great Halo movie that they never got to make? <laughs> yeah, well, that's I, I honestly think that Battleship would have been... not. A, I don't think Battleship had a chance of ever being a huge hit, but I think if they hadn't sold any connection to the board game and given it a different name, it could have been more of a modest hit because it is just a yeah. fun sci-fi blockbuster. Yeah, just and, and also, too, like, uh, I mean, now it's the Battleship show, but... One thing I think people should remember, because I think a lot of people remember Battleship as, like, this movie that failed because it, like, was based on a silly board game and all this kind of shit. But, like, it was actually was, like, a hardcore Aliens, Transformers-type ripoff, Halo, whatever. <laughs> and it actually just did really fucking bad. Uh, I mean, who knows? You know, we never know. Maybe it would have still done bad. But it actually did really bad because, uh, believe it or not, people, for some reason, did not believe that uh marvel's the avengers was going to be big so battleship opened like two weeks later and avengers was one of those kind of movies that was like i think it was like number one for four or five weeks and just sucked the life out of the box well not the life but it sucked the air out of the room so to speak you know well battleship's just one of those films that people think is bad and so they never even bother with it but i swear i mean the majority of people i know have seen it end up actually kind of digging it and saying at at worst you know it's like yeah it wasn't that great but it was still fun it's, and I think most people just end up pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, it's the Taylor Kitsch curse with the movies. Like everybody, I've got, you know, I feel bad for him, but it's like that's the thing. It's like I love Friday Night Lights, and even mm. I could have told you that guy should be a big star, but man, Hollywood went about that the wrong way. Yeah. Right? You roll him out slowly. You don't give him two big blockbuster projects right off the bat like that. And I just feel bad for how much that put him like in the in the Hollywood doghouse. And then I think he was like, oh, man, True Detective Season 2, here's my big comeback. And then that turns out to be horrible, too, you know? Yeah, just really, yeah. I just, I don't know. I feel bad for the guy because I really do like his movies. I mean, I like, it's not, he's not the problem with any of these either. And I mean, and I shouldn't even say that because I like Battleship and John Carter. I think both of them get a bum rap, but. 
Yeah, I mean, even his ill-fated turn as Gambit in the X-Men Origins Wolverine, like, that's a movie people hate, but I I feel like, I don't know, like, I feel like he takes, like, a brunt of that, because it's like, oh, yeah, he was the Gambit that couldn't get his own spin-off movie, like, it's like, no, yeah, it, no. Just, it just was a movie the way it was made, and all honestly, yeah. like, everybody was going to hate it no matter what, you know what I mean? Well, you know, and I, so, uh, you know, I have an X-Men podcast, and yes, me and my you. co-host Joe have both talked about how we, we don't like that film, but we both really liked him as Gambit, and said, I'd be totally down for him still playing that role. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously he, you know, and it wouldn't be a problem for him. He's a pretty athletic dude, but uh, I think he'd have to get like a really lean body shape and stuff because he's a little Mm -hmm. bit older, more bulked up now. I think he'd have to lean down and just get really cut up. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously for whatever reason, I mean, not that it's Channing Tatum's fault. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I don't really know behind the scenes, but uh, the Gambit movie keeps stalling out. And I feel like, yeah, if, if it's maybe, if it's like a cost thing where they're not sure about the budget because Channing Tatum hey, I'm sure they could get Taylor Kitsch for cheaper and it'd probably be just as good, you know? I would imagine, yeah. (laughs) So we're going to, you know, we're going to get the movie started here. Um, I know a lot of people, they don't really follow along with the uh the commentary like with the dvd but i, I we haven't even said we haven't even said what the movie is yet <laughs> yeah we're gonna say a board board game extravaganza clue from uh, 1985 i believe welcome to the 1980s movie graveyard the show that lets forgotten movies have one last chance to shine now sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. But uh, but yeah, but I I need to set this up even a little bit more before we jump into it, just because occasionally people do follow along with the DVD. I do like sometimes see comments after the fact on Facebook. So just want to get you guys ready if you are going to follow along with the DVD or the Blu-ray. I didn't. I have the DVD here that I rented. I didn't even know a Blu-ray was available. But um, this movie, the gimmick of this movie, so to speak. Because it is based on a board game, and the whole point of Clue is a board game, uh, which, uh, which by the way, I love Clue. I, I have the game. Um, I, 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 I feel like I never got to play it enough because I never had enough people around who really want to play it. But when I could play it, it was always awesome. But it's a whodunit murder mystery type thing. So the gimmick of the movie was they actually shot three different endings. Actually, I think they shot four, but one of them the director didn't like. And so what they did was they sent certain prints out to... Uh, you know, different prints with different endings at the movie theater. So depending on what theater, what time of the day, whatever you saw this, you might have seen it differently. Like, you know, some theaters had it play on two screens and they'd be like, oh, come to this showtime if you want to see ending A or this showtime if you want to see ending B, which is weird to me, Trev, because, like, unless you were seeing all the endings, which, you you know, nobody could have backed in, like, you don't know what ending A and ending B is. I, mean, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, so... In order to get this on TV, get this on video, get this on DVD later, they actually did a composite version where they put all the endings, and it kind of gets into a weird thing where they're like, what if this happened? Oh, wait, that didn't really happen. What if this happened? So there is a quote-unquote home video version that's on the disc, and it's uh, it's the 96-minute cut pretty much, and uh, that's mm-hmm. what we'll be watching just so we can cover all the bases and whatnot. But there's also an option on the DVD. You can watch one of the random endings and watch a little shorter version of the movie, but we're watching the extended home video cut with all the endings. So just to clear that up, if you are following along with the disc, which I, which I do think is the version most people today are familiar with, because right. this is what they would show on cable too, is all three endings. And it was on tape that way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause obviously there wasn't seamless branching on videotape or whatever, 
But yeah, just to clarify that, because even if we wanted to say, hey, let's pick a random ending, I put my DVD in, Trev puts his DVD in, we might get a different ending. <laughs> so, yeah. Just talk over each other about what we're seeing. Yeah, but what we're seeing is a Colonel Monster book. But no, yeah, so, all right, I have my PS3 controller in hand. Trev, do you have your PS3 controller in hand? I, I do. And I believe the X button is the thing. We have it paused at the three-second mark, just the opening of the Paramount logo so to speak it's just the mountain it doesn't even say paramount yet we're at the three second mark i'm not sure if the timing is slightly different on the blu-ray but i'm going to say one two three go and when i say go hit the x button on your ps3 controller well wow, would that be even cooler trev if we had such dedicated fans that they like they want to be just like us so they watch the movies synced up on their ps3s <laughs> oh i'm sure it's got to be a few right yeah yeah all of us ps3 movie watching buddies yeah so, all right, everybody, get ready. One, two, three, go. And let's see. Finally, I'm playing. I think I was hitting it so fast, I was starting it and pausing it at the same time. <laughs> You're just so excited to watch Clue again. I, I really am. But, yeah, here we go. And I have a slight different audio-visual setup here today, folks. So if if I'm a little off my game... Please forgive me. But I, I, that's one thing, you know, I, I knew about this movie, Trev. I mean, I remember the, um, like the, the little advertisements in the paper saying, go see this and then go see that. And I just never, mm-hmm. just weird. Just, I never came across it. And since I never really got to whatever involved with it, I was kind of shocked, in all honesty, to see that this was a Deborah Hill production. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know, did you know about John Landis' involvement already? or not Honestly, not really. Just uh, when I was reading the Wikipedia after I watched it the other night. So. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, yeah. of course, good old Goober Peters, too. You know, you know. Oh, yeah. He was really involved with all the, uh, the, the really bizarre movies at the time. I feel like, I feel like there was like a real... I don't know what you want to call it, but there was like a real, like not just movies aimed at teenagers, but even movies like this with the adult cast and stuff. Like, I feel like there was always like um, an effort in the 80s to get these movies more friendly to a young audience, you know, with these mm-hmm. gimmicks and whatnot. Well, this felt like the the, the idea of the gimmick, you know, it like you said, it makes sense based on the game itself. Right. But it really did feel, especially when you know that it was like an idea of John Landis, it really feels like a kind of a tribute to the old William Castle kind of gimmickry oh, yeah. and, and stuff that Hollywood had kind of forgotten about. And this feel like, felt like a last attempt to kind of maybe bring that back a little bit. All right. Right, right off the bat, just with the, um, you have John Peters, Peter Goober, there they are mm-hmm. back with all their swindling bullshit. Just even from the, um, the opening here, even before we see Tim Curry, I got to say watching this other night, Maybe it's just because I've seen Rocky Horror so much, but I got such a Rocky Horror vibe off this. Like, I mean, it's not, but it almost reminds me of like the Rocky Horror gang wanted to get together a couple years after Rocky Horror and make another movie. <laughs> like, I just know, like, I, I'm guessing you're the same because I feel like you and I have a lot of the same taste with this. But any movie that opens with like driving up to a mansion that looks like that, you know, yeah. is I'm probably gonna enjoy. <laughs> I just feel like. <laughs> yeah. I, I already start to get excited because I love, you know, mysterious dark mansions and you just have a good feeling about it. And then, yeah, as you said, I mean, I also you start a movie with uh, Tim Curry and I'm all also excited. Especially, I mean, not that I don't like seeing the movies now, but like 
80s, you know, 70s and 80s Tim Curry, I think, was the best era. You know, when he got up in his, like, 40s, mid-40s, I feel like he was, like, more relegated for some reason into, like, smaller, over-the-top character roles in movies like Charlie's Angels and Congo and stuff, you know. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was talking earlier about my love for this film and why I picked it. But I I think and I don't I'm sure I'm not the only person like this, but it's probably rare that to me, I know when you when most people think of Tim Curry, they think of Frankenfurter or they think of Pennywise. Mm. But Wadsworth is really that's the Tim Curry role to me. Like, that's always the first thing that pops into mind. And that's this is like in my head, this is like his most iconic character. And it's just because of how often I watch this as a kid. Well, I mean, mean, obviously, there's that factor. But I kind of I kind of see like where you're going with that just because this is i mean obviously he's playing like a really theatrical type character in this but um this is kind of the one out of his more famous roles or i guess you know his like really big roles where he he commands a lot of screen time that like he's he's not trapped underneath a um you know a pile of fucking makeup and weird shit no this is he's, this is this is this is tim curry you know recognizable yeah. as tim curry and, and and pretty much in almost every scene right? so I mean, and obviously, you talk about transformations. Obviously, he played the amazing demon villain in uh, Legend. So mm-hmm. now here we have Colleen Camp as uh, Yvette, the the maid, uh, of course, the French maid, right? And yeah, let's Colleen just Camp call it out. Yeah, well, and let's talk about how amazingly hot Colleen Camp was yeah. back in the eighties. I mean, this movie will keep reminding you of it uh, quite proudly over but, and over. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, this in particular, I have to say, like, you know, I was really surprised for such a kind of a mainstream whatever that they're really uh, focusing on her boobage that much. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't think you could release a mainstream movie like that now, you know? Yeah. With, with that type of character, I should say. But, yeah, this is uh, this actually set in New England in 1954, and... Uh, uh, maybe you maybe you won't know this either, Trev, but uh, I apologize for not doing my homework. Was there a significance in places that that year? Is that like when the game well, came so, out or something? No, I was actually just about to talk about that. I don't know if that's when the game came out. I, I, I will admit I don't know enough about that, but I was wondering about that myself like as we were preparing this episode and thinking, well, geez, it's just one of those things you take for granted when you watch the movie as a kid, right? Like, oh, it's in the 50s. Why? Why not just have it be a contemporary? Right. But, I mean, story-wise, there is a definite significance because of stuff that will come up later in the film yeah. in terms of the FBI's involvement and you know the Red Scare stuff kind of plays into this um, and I guess since it's a movie all about paranoia and mystery you know they were just kind of trying to hit on that that McCarthyism and fear of communists so that's a big part of the, the film but I don't know if there's any direct correlation to the game I don't remember the game specifically giving a time period when you play it I remember it, it was old timey and, yeah. and, and that just might have been from when it originally came out um I hate to do this because it's always like a hack thing to do on a podcast, but I'm so curious. I will do uh, some IT investigating here. But yeah, but uh, I mean, the another thing too is, you know, and I don't know how much of this is, you know, um, how they got built. Actually, I know some of these people was more what came after, but when you watch this movie now, it really like... I don't know. It, it, like, it really is an amazing. Uh, well, Clue, Clue, yeah, originally called Cluedo. Uh, Cluedo. 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 I'm sorry, yeah. Cluedo. Yeah. Uh, 1949 first came out. So no. Oh wow. Well, yeah. yeah. But no. Um, yeah, because Cluedo is actually still what it's called in Britain. It's uh, right, Clue. I was reading that. 
description of it, yeah. But I don't know if this movie is called Cluedo in Britain. I've never really looked into that. But Yeah, I never have either. But this is actually an all-star comedy cast. I mean, right off the bat, we just... Well, that's... Started. that's Yeah, when I recommended this movie to you, I was thinking, like, you know, sometimes we've done movies where, you know, it's sometimes we go off on tangents. And, but then I was thinking, man, with this movie, we can just talk forever about each cast member, you know? Yeah. It's just a, it's amazing the the talent they assembled and as you said like kids who would watch this now or a younger audience might not realize this is an all star cast but for this time this was such a comedic powerhouse film that it's actually pretty shocking to me that this movie wasn't a box office hit it actually was not it was a failure at the box office yeah and really kind of found its audience it found its audience once it got to cable like I said and really right. started playing all the time and then it built up a cult following. And you know, I'm sh- I'm sure because the budget wasn't that high. I think the budget was like around 15 million, and it pretty much. I think, like, I think it just broke even. The yeah, box it, office. it broke even. Which, which really, when you break even the box office, pretty much it means you lose some money on the uh, <laughs> the advertising costs and making all the prints. And in this case, I'm sure probably the print cost was even more because uh, of the little gimmick. But um, but yeah, but uh, one thing I you know this is just getting back to the all star cast. Uh, Obviously, you know, you have Tim Curry, uh, Martin Maul, Michael McKeon here. But it was funny when Christopher Lloyd popped up, I'm like, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, Doc Brown. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, this came out the same year as Back to the Future. And like, I totally forgot Christopher Lloyd was already like a pretty big, co- you know, comedic actor from his turn on Taxi, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I don't know how I forgot that because he used to watch <laughs> the shit out of Taxi reruns when I was like real young with his crazy bum character. I think his name was Jim on the show. Yeah. Well, I think it's also because, you know, the framing device of Back to the Future kind of features the older Doc Brown. Mm-hmm. And I certainly had that thing where when I was a kid, I thought Christopher Lloyd was a lot older than he was at the time, you Me know, too, because yeah. of that. Yeah. And so you kind of forget like, oh, yeah, this doesn't seem like the same year because he seems younger in this. But no, it's that they purposely cast a younger guy in Back to the Future so that he, they could go back and, you know, meet him at a younger age. Yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm going to break the show here. I'm going to break the fourth wall or break the topic or however you want to say it. And I'm going to actually do a non-commercial and tell people not to buy Rockstar Revolt Killer Citrus cuz this tastes terrible. <laughs> God, this tastes terrible. It's I'm it, sorry. Man. I I've had worse. I've had I tried the Rockstar Organic and I thought, "Oh, and like even the can looks like it's like mate, you know, like the design is almost like a bamboo type design. That that tastes like pure weed. Like it was just like you're drinking weed juice. This is just, I don't know, this is like the watered-down weed juice, but, yes, yeah, but I'm trying to get crunk over here, trying to get hyped up for Clue, because, you know, there, there's there's some, you know, as you know, Trev, there's some manic en- energy and then some in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to get hyped for it. Okay, I'm going to sound like a rube here, but uh, here comes the awesome uh, Leslie Ann Warren, who I believe it was the Leslie Ann Warren role that originally Carrie Fisher was supposed to play, but, mm-hmm. uh... You know, you know, uh, rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. Uh, it was around the time I guess her demons were kept catching up with her, and she was going through her postcards from the Edge era, I guess. Yeah. So Leslie Ann Warren. So, and uh, I actually saw. Uh, you know, I always just thought of Leslie Ann Warren as you know, a, not an older woman, but you know, just a grown up woman. I was surprised that, like, just a couple years before this, it was a, I can't remember the name of the movie, but she was still playing like high school roles. <laughs> Leslie and where it was like around <laughs> yeah, just, 83 or something. And, uh, just because, like you said here, she's, I mean, she's pretty hot in this too, but in that like oh, definite yeah. like kind of cougar milf way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think, she, I don't think she was even that old. I mean, without 
being a hack and looking up when she was born and all that. I think she was probably only in her early 30s here, but she always had that kind of, before there was even the term MILF, like she had that whole thing going on, you know? Mm -hmm. And she was another one sporting the boobage here. There was a lot of kind of boobage going on in this movie, and, you know, even the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name here, but even the lady who uh, played the uh, drill sergeant in Private, uh, Private Benjamin, even they tried to, like, glam her up a bit in this movie. So we, here we have almost the Agatha Christie type set up. Everybody set up. And um, I'm trying to think of kind of what this would compare. Would you say this is almost like a House on the Haunted Hill type situation where everybody is gathered together? Well, oh. this, ends, this ends up being just a typical locked room mystery, right? You were yeah. dead on with like the Agatha Christie comparison. Like there's there's something to be said for why, you know, I, I, you were in the Wikipedia entry earlier. Maybe you can speak to this a little bit, right? But why there's even this approach to say, hey, let's make a Clue movie, right? Yeah. But then, I mean, obviously, Clue is one of the few board games that has a story that lends itself to, you know, a cinematic version. But then when it's time to, like, make a Clue movie, what do you do? And they essentially just made the same kind of mystery that we've seen a lot before, especially like in, like, the 40s and 50s with these kind of locked room yeah. parlor mysteries. And uh, there's a definite tone to that. And you could have easily named all these characters something different and just had this be a parody of that kind of genre. But just by giving them the names, it, it ties into Clue, you know? Exactly. And, uh, and of course, later, if you're a big Clue head, like later the moment where they get the weapons and everything, it's it's pretty fun. It's an exciting moment because you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm getting it now. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's almost like <laughs> if, you're, if you're into the Clue universe, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. almost <laughs> like when they bring out the weapons and it's the weapons from the game. And, uh, you know, that's almost like, like that scene, if you're really a big Clue or Cluedo head, that's really yeah. almost like a J.J. Abrams type moment. Yeah, or that's, remember when they showed, like, Thor's hammer at the end of Iron Man oh, 2? Yeah. That's what this was like, you know? <laughs> so so for all the people, all the people who go to, like, the Clue conventions, I'm sure they were losing their minds at that scene, you know? So definitely, I think J.J. Abrams learned how to reboot not only Star Trek, but Star Wars. And I think Kevin Feige learned how to run the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe from watching Clue. And this is a movie, you know what I like about this movie, too, is that, especially today, there's a tendency for a comedy to only be a one kind of comedy. And this is a slapstick comedy. It's a farce. There's a lot of verbal humor. There's a lot of simple juvenile humor. We just had a joke just about the different ways people uh, slurp soup. You know, there's just so many different things to enjoy in this that it's it's a pretty confident film of saying, hey, we've got a really funny cast who can do all kinds of different kind of comedy. Let's just stick it all in here. Exactly. And speaking of the cast, uh, please forgive me when we're talking about how all-star it is. But I, maybe I just wasn't, like, paying attention to the opening credits enough the other night. But, like, I sat there for, like, half this movie the other night being like, is that Madeline Kahn? Is that oh, Madeline yeah. Kahn? It looks like her. Sounds like, oh, it doesn't quite look like her in this scene. Madeline Kahn is so, like, into this character. Like, I couldn't tell if she was supposed to be part Asian or what. Just so, I, I don't I can't put my finger. She looks so different. And eventually, it was bugging the shit out of me. I paused the movie and looked it up. Uh, on IMDb, I was like, "Oh, it is Malik Khan," and just like it's so, it's so weird. I don't know why I had such a hard time, like because I recognize everybody. She's so goodness too. Not that she's never not good, but yeah. this, this again is like one of my favorite characters of hers. And there's a particular moment later that I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to it. That is, I think, one that still kind of counts as one of the most iconic Madeline Khan moments. A certain speech she gives, and uh, yeah, it's a, it, 
every time I watch Man on Con, it's just, man, what a bummer, you know, because yeah. she should still be out there doing awesome work. And that's that's just such a shame that we lost her. I know. Like, I, like I was thinking about it, and then maybe it's because we've had such bad luck lately losing actors. But uh, I was watching this the other night, and uh, I was, like, Googling some of the people, like Colin Camp. Because she was really the only, Colin Camp was really the only one just I wasn't completely really familiar with like i didn't know quite who who she was and then like i looked at her credits i'm like oh yeah i like i know who she is i just Mm -hmm. didn't really know her by face but uh i was like you know because this movie's you know kind of older it's what 32 years old now Mm -hmm. and i was like oh what a bummer but i mean i think i I think we're only missing two people from this movie i think Uh, definitely madeline khan and then um I think the lady from Private Benjamin, I think maybe she passed away, but I'm not even sure about that. But other than that, this movie's got a pretty good batting average for a celebrity tragedy. We didn't lose too many of these people yet. Yeah, that's uh, Eileen Brennan as Miss Peacock. That's the that's Private right. Benjamin lady for those who are, yeah. <laughs> so, and then, so I don't have to keep calling her Private Benjamin lady. <laughs> well, and I was just thinking we haven't, like, for those listening, we haven't run through everybody. So, I mean, we've mentioned some of them, So let's not forget we also have the, the great Martin Mull mm-hmm. and... Michael McKean, uh, you know, so like we said, just a total powerhouse all around. Yeah, and, Martin, and like Martin Mull is so good, and he's another guy. Like he, so he was recently on Community. He played Britta's father in a few episodes, and I was so happy to see him. And it's just that kind of thing where, like, why aren't more people still casting Martin Mull? He's so yeah. good. I think. Well, I mean, I definitely got into Martin Mull as a kid because I watched Mr. Mom a thousand times on uh, HBO. But um, another thing that he did, which was amazing, and my dad was a big fan of it. And like later I went back, I can't remember if it was somebody, I can't remember if it was Nick and I, or somewhere there was, you were able to watch it. But have you ever seen Fernwood Tonight? I was just about to bring that up. Fernwood Tonight is is fantastic. And that's what I say. So people who only know Martin Mull from some of the, you know, the bigger, more mainstream Hollywood stuff he's done, go look into Martin Mull. And especially if you're a fa- like a, a student of comedy or a huge fan of comedy, because he really was. He's kind of like he's a lot like Steve Martin in that he's one of the first kind of really strange, kind of bizarre comics, you know, early in his career. And uh, if you can listen, I think you can listen to him on YouTube. His early comedy albums are all great because it's just such weird uh, humor that kind of would fit into what they call alternative comedy today. You know? Yeah. We're we're only like a few moments away here from the first murder of the movie, Mister Body, which I think is like the main person who gets killed in the board game Clue. If I remember, I haven't played it in such a long time. Mister um, Body played here by Lee Ving from the. Punk group Fear, which uh, maybe yeah. some, some people may or may not know, was uh, John Belushi was a big fan, and uh, it's one of the most famous musical performances of all time of Saturday Night Live when Fear played. And I think they played like three songs that night, and it just was like pure mayhem with people jumping around the stage and running on the stage and shit. So. Yeah, they were the, they were pr- promptly banned from uh, yeah. Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and he's had a couple of little roles in other films. You know, yeah. he popped up. At- Flashdance and uh, Streets of Fire, which is about to get a special edition Blu-ray, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, like um, I, I kept whiffing and whiffing on the import blue for years, losing out on auctions and shit. And, uh, you know, finally, that, that's like the one movie that Scream Slash Shout has not, you know, is putting out that I didn't just buy right before they announced <laughs> it. You know what I mean? So I'll be happy yeah. to throw some bucks their way, you know? 
But yeah, but if anyone is like, if you you know have a mild interest, in, well, I guess more maybe more of a mild than mild interest. But if you're a, a fan of punk and you haven't heard Fear, do yourself a favor and go check some of that out. Oh yeah, really. Good. I mean, I you know I became familiar with them through the Repo Man soundtrack and mm-hmm. actually bought a couple of their CDs other years and really never knew much. You know, I mean, I kind of knew the name Leaving, but like. I really just, I guess I just never really saw him, like, all the mm-hmm. years I was listening to their music. And then when I saw him in, uh, I saw him in something else first, and this is like, I could totally see why he segued into acting, besides, obviously, he probably knew a lot of actors and whatnot, helping get in the biz. But other than that, he doesn't have a punk guy's face. He kind of has, like, a old-timey face and look, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he, he's not your typical punk rocker from the late 70s. Well, no, and in this, like, with that suit and everything, he does look really classy and looks yeah. like he belongs, like, here. And <clears throat> So we haven't talked too much about the story, but, I mean, those of you who have played Clue, and, you know, there's not that there's much to say, but I guess we can just generally report that here we have all the the standard Clue characters that we all know from the board game. Um, you know, Professor Plum, Colonel Mustard, Mrs. White, Miss Scarlet, Mrs. Peacock, and Mr. Green have all been invited to this mansion. They don't know who, they don't, you know, they don't know each other. They're, it's all kind of a mystery. And they just know they've been invited there to meet with Mr. Body, the supposed owner of the mansion. And Tim Curry is playing Wadsworth, the butler of the mansion, who's kind of the host of the evening. And as the film goes on, we'll, we'll start to learn like the connections that everyone has and why they're all there. But that's that's the basic setup here. Yeah, because it's, it's kind of like, uh, like I was saying before, it's kind of just like in the beginning, it's kind of like, oh, why are we all grouped together? Oh, it's, mm-hmm. it's all random. It's all whatever. We don't really know each other. And then yeah, you know, as, I mean, as it goes along, you know, I, I mean, there's actually a lot for a comedy. As much as like slapstick stuff, they do physical comedy. They do kind of mm-hmm. build into this thing. Like, there is a lot of actual story in it. So, I mean, yeah. Well, now we're actually in the scene right now where Wadsworth is starting to reveal everyone's dirty secret because now we're learning that they're all being blackmailed, and that's yeah. why their connection and this is where the 50s thing really comes in because now you're learning a lot of their stories have to do with you know like i said this the the fear in america at the time of being anti-american and communist and uh it really just like i said it it, for a comedy it's really playing into the the dramatic aspect of that at the moment of everyone being suspicious and paranoid about their neighbors and just the the worst thing you could be called right is like un-american at this time yeah a commie (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it kind of it kind of makes sense um, a little bit. Like we were saying, like why they picked 1954. It makes a little bit, you know. I mean, it would have been probably when, well, definitely when they were shooting or whatever. It was you know 30 years earlier, but also the time period. I, I feel like there's always something uh, as uh, definitely in the artistic world, but even as a society, just for nostalgia for you know art and music and whatever, like. I always feel like we're always exactly almost nostalgic for the decade that was 30 years prior. So, like, I, there was a lot of movies in the 80s and also actually the very early 90s, 90, 91, that, like, focus on the 50s a lot. Do you kind of remember mm-hmm. that that trend in film, Trev? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. And I definitely think we're seeing it now with things like uh, Strange Things and whatnot that are very, I mean, you know, J.J. kind of kicked it off you know, whatever, six, seven years ago with Super 8, but we're, we're definitely getting a lot of films that, uh, you know, even independent films I'm seeing that just kind of, you know, are coming-of-age tales set in the 80s, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And obviously that has a lot to do with the creative people. You know, they're telling the stories of their youth, the writers, directors, and whatnot. But I've always found that um, kind of interesting. You know? I, th- I think the only time that I remember in my lifetime there, where that trend got bucked a little, get it w- a little bit was I remember there was like a really brief disco revival in like the 90s when I think I think everybody of a certain age was kind of tired of grunge and whatever and they just wanted to go back during the fun there was like a little bit of a disco revival and that was you know 20 years prior but other than that it seems like we're we're always looking at the 30 year Mm -hmm. rule now I'm curious because I'm interested to hear your perspective on this as someone who just watched this for the first time as opposed to me seeing it too many times to count but as you watched it and you know after your first kind of initial viewing did you have a favorite character of the bunch or because i'm just watching this now and i'm I'm some you know like like usual i don't have the audio on but i'm reading the subtitles and i'm thinking you know i kind of love everybody but i'm thinking you know what i'm i think the colonel mustard martin mole has like a lot of the funniest lines in the movie i think he kind of gets a lot of the the best kickers you know yeah i mean for sure like i mean like when i watched it i like like i was instantly kind of drawn to Curry, because, like, even in the beginning when he's just kind of, like, leading everybody into the room, mm-hmm. like, it's kind of just, like, I don't know, I don't know if it's just because I'm a fan of him or just what, but, like, I was, like, really drawn and, like, really, like, zeroing in on, like, every little mannerism or whatever, because, obviously, like, even from the beginning, the first time you see this, you can tell that he's more than a butler, obviously, but, yeah, I kind of, I kind of pop for Martin Mull, um, because I'm a big Martin Mull fan, and it's, it's really weird, like, I also really love this movie he did called Cutting Class. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. you're aware, aware mm-hmm. of it, Trev. But it's just, like, a really, really standard slasher movie from, like, 1989. And the only thing that's really memorable about it is it's an early Brad Pitt movie. But, like, he's in it, and, like, he's even inappropriately kind of funny. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I just I just, just really, really like him. I really like his mannerisms. So, like, Definitely, I'd say maybe the first half of the movie I was zeroed in on Curry and uh, Martin Mall, mm-hmm. and obviously I like Michael McKean and I like Christopher Lloyd. But as the movie went on, I actually really started getting more focused on the female characters, on Leslie and Warren, and then obviously Colleen Camp. Like, you know, she's obviously more than a maid as you see the story goes along. So I was drawn into her and uh, Madeline Kahn too. So I mean, it it's kind of hard to say. Especially with the way that the movie ends, it starts showing a lot. It, like, there's no one main character. Like, Curry. no Curry in a weird way is like almost the narrator of the story. You know what I mean? Well, and then you watch, you kind of understand why. Not that it was ne- necessary, but you almost get like why they might have felt like they had to do the multiple endings because you yeah. kind of want to see all these characters get their due in a version of the ending. Right. And thankfully, with multiple endings, you kind of do get that. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Here's our big moment we talked about. Yeah. And it's, it's it's really funny, too, because it's, like, like, everybody in this movie I'm familiar with, and it's, like, I mean, this is definitely a movie, like, I'm definitely going to buy the Blu-ray now, but uh, it's definitely a movie, like, I kind of want to, like, revisit every year, but watch mm-hmm. on the random ending. Like, I'll, I'm going to ask, I'll probably never watch this version ever again that has all three endings, you know what I mean? Like, I kind of want to go down that path of, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> JJ's popping big in the theater right now with all his high school plays. <laughs> well, it's funny because you know, the, like some of these, it's it's the obvious like 
contrivance of it just being connected to the game, right? Because yeah. if you were going to give people boxes with things that you intend for them to try and kill people with, you certainly wouldn't pick a candlestick, you right. know? But, of course, that was part of the game, so it's in here. But, yeah, but, uh, I mean, the, the, the version here with all three endings, I mean, you are right that you kind of want to get your little moment with everybody because this is such a freaking all-star cast. But at the same time, like... Like, like when they're just doing all the what-if scenarios, like, it feels very tacked on. Like, narratively, that's the only thing I don't like, really, about just watching all the endings at once. But, um, but yeah, like, like I don't know. It, it really is hard, because, like, nobody seems like the main character in this movie at all. Yeah, Wadsworth is probably the, kind of feels like the default, maybe. But. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's really, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a gimmick, but, um. I always think this is, like, maybe if you just want to talk about, like, you know, ensemble screenwriting, this this is kind of a movie that, you know, especially for modern movies, I think this is kind of a movie that should be studied a little bit by people, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a, you know, it's it's a farce, you know, first and foremost, but it's there's some really clever plotting in this, and even just... You could talk about story economy too, right? How quickly they set up this whole scenario because right. now we're we're to like you know the big moment where we've we've been, it's been revealed that Wadsworth is the one who called everyone together because he too was being blackmailed by Mr. Body and he wanted them all to come together to expose him, and now Mr. Body has turned that on them all by giving them all you know lethal weapons and then turning on the lights and saying, hey, if one of you kills Wadsworth, you you we can just all go home, everything's go back to normal. And now here we have it. The lights have gone out, come back on, and Mr. Body's dead. And how quickly they got to that and how effectively they set it up. And we know where every character's motivation, why everyone's here. It's a really clever movie. I want to throw another filmmaker under the bus for stealing from this movie. I'm, I'm imagining in Australia a young James Wong coming, uh, you know, home Friday night during uh, probably middle school, going to the local video store, seeing, seeing this movie. And seeing and say, oh man, what, what if what, what is, instead of Mister Body, what if I made a guy named Jigsaw and he put people in a room <laughs> and he blackmailed everybody and then he said, you can you can escape this, but you gotta kill the person next to you. Well, have you you know have you ever seen uh, the Abominable Doctor Fibes? No, no <laughs> the Vincent I, Price I, film. I, I'm I'm fairly familiar with it, but I mean, I, I yeah, you should really, I mean, you should check it out. It's actually probably it's my favorite Vincent Price movie. And that ends with a climax where Dr. Fibes has actually, um, you know, one of the doctors, he's kind of tormenting. He's kidnapped his son, and he has the son hooked up to a table where acid is going to drop onto his face unless the doctor, unless his father can operate on him because he's put the key inside him that he needs to unlock Ooh, him. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they directly took that for Saw. So. Yeah, James Wan, you're not fool, fool, fooling anybody. <laughs> Everyone thinks you're so great now, but we know where it's all coming from. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, we have a lot of great kind of physical comedy with everybody popping up at the same time and doing this. And, you know, the mm-hmm. the, uh, the delivery is, uh, so I'll say, you know, we're going to border on a little bit of Altman-esque in terms of, like, people rapid fire talking over each other and just the timing just right here with these group scenes. But um, if you strip away kind of all the manic kind of slapstick part of it, like the acting is actually really awesome. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. and I and I think it kind of shows you know that whole thing of um, you know comedians like they also can flip the coin and be really good dramatic actors because like that's one thing is that 
for all the quote unquote you kind of artifice you think would come along with this movie with you know it being based on a board game and then a gimmick with three different endings like there's nobody and obviously it's probably the way they shot it they probably maintained the energy they probably you know and plus they cast the right people but nobody sleeps walk through sleep uh, excuse me nobody sleepwalks through this movie like whatsoever no everybody's in the moment everybody's present like for sure and it's a movie, as you just said, too, that requires a lot of high energy, too, because, I mean, we just saw our first of roughly 364 scenes where the entire group has to suddenly run through the whole house, you exactly. know. And, and uh, yeah, it's I, I bet this movie was a blast to film, you know, when you have this many funny actors and uh, all together every day, right? Because this is a an ensemble movie from beginning to end. There, there, there's, this, nobody can be in their trailer while somebody else films their scene. No, yeah. And then, you know, it's all one set. And this was, uh, I believe this was filmed, what, at the Paramount lot uh, on some sound stages there. Uh, yeah, Clue is filmed on sound stages at the Paramount Pictures Film Studios. Um, so yeah, you know, just kind of really old school, traditional Hollywood filmmaking uh, in a new, you know, context with all these comedic actors. It was probably a blast. I mean, obviously, you know, the, it sets or whatever, but you know, this the setting, the the time period, the wardrobe, the uh, kind of classic comedy timing and stuff. Like, I mean, I don't like. <laughs> I guess it's, like, really cool right now to only watch movies that came out, like, 2009 and after. But I would really urge people, if you're, like, a little bit younger, like, to give this movie a try. Give it a rent. Find it. Whatever. And uh, see if you like this. Because, like, it's really got the modern... I don't want to go as far as to say low attention span or whatever. But it's got the modern delivery where it's, like, going to keep your pace, you know, the pace is going to keep you awake and not ever really bore you, but it's going to have a lot of nods to the past of, like, you mm-hmm. know, comedy history and techniques and whatever. So, like, I definitely think, you know, if I had to show, you know, I, I mean, granted, yes, this movie's 32 years old, but, I mean, relatively speaking, you know, not too old of a movie to younger people to try to get them hooked on, like, kind of more classic shit, I would definitely show them this movie. yeah. Well, and like I said, I, I really do think it's a movie that, you know, we, we've said this before about other 80s movies, and I think it's the, it's the test of what are the, the best ones, right? And that this could come out today and still be effective and still work, whereas that's not true of other 80s comedies, even certain ones I like, right? There's certain, like, pacing issues and tone. I mean, even from, like, the early, like, the early films of Albert Brooks, those don't feel like the kind of comedies that come out today, right, as much as I love them. But this this could be the same exact movie come out today and still feel like something that should be out because it's just it's because by tapping into all these different kinds of comedy and by the classic kind of comedy that always works, it just makes a timeless movie. Well, exactly. And and speaking of what you're saying, uh, Trev, this was actually tapped to be remade, I think, around 2011. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, actually eventually just scrapped. Um, I think a lot of that, you know, this is just my speculation, you know. But um, I think one of the reasons it was scrapped was, um, you know, even though this movie was a one-off, this is kind of the beginning of Paramount trying to uh, sucker whatever Milton Brantley has, bro, whatever it was, you know, that relationship later that bore Transformers and Battleship mm-hmm. and all that kind of shit. But um, I don't know, like, uh, like, like I, I think one of the reasons probably this did not end up getting remade was no matter which way you cut it, even if you updated it, like there's still going to be a lot of um, 
you know, even though the broad aspect of the comedy would play well internationally, I don't think the amount of dialogue required, you know, because this movie has a shitload of dialogue, and I don't think you could do a version of it. I mean, you could do a version of it that'd be modern, but I don't think you could do a version of it that didn't require a lot of backstory for each character. You know what I mean? Well, and I, you know, I was, because I love this movie, that remake you're talking about that ended up being shelved, I was kind of following the progress of it as, as far as it got, right? Yeah. And actually, the talk at the time was that it was not going to be a comedy. They were thinking about wow. trying to, like, you know, do a serious murder mystery clue film. And to <laughs> me, that was like, I mean, kind of, kind of, what's the point? But yeah, yeah, I mean, we there's already so many movies like that right yeah. and to me it's like i think this was wise knowing that there's something inherently silly about making a movie based on a board game like this so yeah. why not play it up and play the you know the the comedic farcial element of it so yeah. i don't know if that would have worked i would have been open to it you know i would have seen it and seen how it turned out but uh i mean i'm not i'm not uh, sorry it didn't happen necessarily and that being said, I don't know if you saw this goat, but there actually is another Clue movie that was made for TV a couple of years ago. That was like a teen version of Clue. Really? I it, uh, yeah, I can't, it played on like one of those teen channels, like you know, like a Disney Channel ABC or Family like Family or something. Yes, yeah, and it's all it, it is the characters, but it's all teen versions. And I never saw it. I don't know if I actually don't even know if it's like a comedic approach or if it was trying to be serious. But yeah. part of me wants to see it for sheer curiosity, and another part probably knows that it's probably best i don't you know but yeah that's a very uh it's interesting that you brought that up because that's a very now thing of uh the characters you know and love but remember them when they were teenagers like mm -hmm. <laughs> i could see that almost being the focus of a remake now like a big budget remake but i don't know i mean obviously like we said the box office didn't really pop for this movie back in the day so you know, the all-star cast didn't really work then, but I think the only way you could do this now as a comedy, it would have to almost be like a fucking Jonah Hill Brat Pack type movie, because, like, I don't... It'd have to be a comedy all-star type movie at all to garner people's interest to get people out yeah. of the house at all, you know, because people really only want to see big spectacle movies now. Yeah. Well, no, and I do think, I mean, honestly, I know, you you know, I'm probably more of those guys than you are, but I do think that would work, at least in a sense of getting people interested and getting people in, this, in you know, butts in the seats. I mean, because you said this at the time was an all-star cast. Yeah. And what would be the modern equivalent? I could see them doing a clue today with, you know, like you said, Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd and... You know, um, I don't know where I don't know the, the women you throw in. You know, Amy, Amy Schumer and Aubrey Plaza. You know, finding that kind of cast and throwing it together. I think that's really the only way a film like this would yeah. get greenlit today. I, I tell you what, if this got remade, I would be on my knees praying that uh, we could get Kate McKinnon in it. That's, oh yeah, that's my current female uh, comedy person. Kate McKinnon as Miss White. I mean, oh, it'd be great. I mean, really, any of these roles should be awesome. But yeah. <clears throat> Probably, you know, we'd probably get like a gender swapped uh, Wadsworth. Probably, we would need like Ke Kevin Hart to play one of them because you'd need, uh, you know, multicultural cast. So, which, which, by the way, I don't, I don't have a problem with the multicultural cast, but um, oh my god, Kevin Hart is brutal, dude. And I've seen his movies, like I've seen them okay, in the. So theater. I don't know. So I don't know if you, I don't know if you're only just talking about his movies, but to me. Kevin Hart has the same like problem. It's like what I like. It's like Ricky Gervais, Chris Rock syndrome. Yeah. Where I think he is a funny guy, and I think like he just I seems like when yeah. you see him on like talk shows, he seems genuinely likable, genuinely funny. 
but it just cannot translate to films for some reason. Like every Ricky Gervais movie has been a has been a slog, and Chris Rock is like I I heard Top Five was really good. I haven't seen it, but Top most Five of his is great. Kinda, yeah, yeah. But you know he did a lot of pretty bad ones. Oh. So, it's a, but uh, but I I genuinely like Kevin Hart like the person. He seems really funny and cool. Yeah, it's just you just have to you, like listen, man. Like there's a lot of people in this world that are under the height of six foot. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it just happens. It's it's fine that it happens. <laughs> like, nobody... Like, in real life, people really don't get... Like, once you're out of the high school, people don't get that much shit for being short. But somehow, like, they just throw away any, like, written comedy aspect of Kevin Hart and his movies, and they just make fucking short... Like, visual short... Like, him being short is, like, the comedy crutch that Melissa McCarthy had for, like, a exactly. long time. For, where she just fell down and rolled around yep. or whatever. You know what I mean? So... And like and like, I want to like his movies because especially like the ride along movies, those are the type of movies like those kind of like new line cinema type Mike Epps, Chris Tucker '90s movies. Like that's the kind of like buddy fun movie, but like they're so PG thirteen. And I'm not just talking about the rating; I mean just like their tameness. Like they're just so PG thirteen. Like you can't. So I had the same kind of problem with Central Intelligence where they teamed up with The Rock. It's like you can't do an action movie where there's action comedy, I should say, where there's no action and then all the comedy is like completely politically correct. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is why I'm watching this now and thinking like this is why you and I would never be able to like keep talk about the different jokes in this film because we're at a point now where they're really coming fast and furious. Yeah. The the film is really ramped up and now we're getting like a joke kind of every few seconds and uh, this is the we're running into what I think is one of the funniest aspects of the movie is now we have two bodies right Mr. Body's been murdered and so has the cook. Yeah. And one of the funniest things that they develop in the film is the overall casualness they start having about moving bodies and dealing with dead bodies. I just find that all like really silly, and just the like just now when Colonel Mustard was kind of instructing them about moving the cook's body around, and just says, you know, all right, well, let's put the corpses on the sofa. Yeah, like when Mister Body died, it was like the shock of a lifetime. But now it's like by the time the second lady dies, uh, mm. it's 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 like almost old hat. It's just like, yeah, just like look at like Professor Plum sitting on the couch with the corpses with his arms around them. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's kind of great, too, because you almost, you know, with the tension of, like, with everybody trying to figure out, okay, what's what's really going on? Is this one of us? Is it somebody in the house? Like, kind of what's really the situation that's going to shit so much? And, like, even though it's in definitely in a big comedic way, like, this is almost like the comedic version of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's in a mansion and not, you know not in a warehouse or whatever or more mm-hmm. but yeah here we have this guy who just kind of shows up and um the motorist yeah. the motorist yeah and it's kind of great because at this point in time like we said like they're starting to realize hey these murders are still going on it's you know they're one of us is you know or maybe there's somebody else and then this guy shows up with the classic my car broke down can i use your phone who like in any movie that's always the most untrustworthy person <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, this movie definitely plays a lot of tropes that, uh, you know, even, like, obviously, even back in the 80s, these were already tropes worth making fun of, you know? Yeah. But they let him in, and they let him use the phone here, and then, you know, obviously what happens is, that, you know, they lock him in the room and whatnot. But uh, and he, he kind of becomes like a wild card, because you're like, 
like I'm assuming like like what did you think of the shtick of like Curry like always locking everybody in all the rooms and stuff? Uh, I mean, it works for what they're trying to set up, right? The idea yeah. that they're keeping these, you know, so what it leads to is fine. But I was, it's obviously, it doesn't really seem like something you would necessarily do if you weren't trying to look suspicious. You know, right. to <laughs> lock these people in. Because, I mean, you know, this is like a, you know, commentary. So everybody's seeing, and he's actually throws the key like way far away into the storm. Mm-hmm. Not, but like, I, like, like I was totally down with it with like the first guy. But then when they're just like locking the police officer away, I'm like, there's no way they suspect the police officer. I mean, obviously too, they they want to stop him from seeing other things, you know, bodies and shit. But it started started really getting like fucking crazy later on. I do watch this now, and uh, oh, see, there's another great moment like that where. Um, Colonel Mustard looks into the room and people say everything all right. He's like, yep, two corpses. Everything's fine. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Martin Mull is just, he's so good in this, man. Like the, the deadpan delivery he has is great. But um, watching it out, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that some of these like secondary ancillary characters that show up aren't kind of faces we know a little bit more, you know, since yeah. everyone else is, is just such a kind of packed star movie. Yeah, it, it we get we get weird. one later. That's definitely a big, a big time, a big name, especially around this time. Oh, but yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's kind of funny too, like when you put like all these people together in this like combined situation and like they're trying to figure out what to do and whatnot, like it's kind of funny, like what people go in what direction and like have what ideas and, you know, and it just like, it's kind of interesting too, is like, I feel like there's a good play in between like, nobody really, like, sides up with each other, but, like, I, I, I kind of find it interesting, like, the difference between, like, the way the men handle it and, like, the women handle it, too. <clears throat> you know, it's, I, I wonder. I wanted to bring this up during this episode and, and I guess ask you, Goat, if you have ever done anything like this or if you're interested in it. But um, so this film, like, as you said, wasn't really necessarily a huge hit, but it definitely gained a cult following in the later years as it got on cable. And I wonder if you could track this to, like we said, this is obviously making fun of a lot of previous films that exist in this kind of genre, these locked house, uh, locked room murder mysteries. But I wonder if the popularity of this film has anything to do with, like, the kind of rise of, like, murder mystery night parties, you know? And the actual, like, theme to, like, let's have a murder mystery party. Or, like, and, you know, there's actually things where you can go to, like, mansions and do this, you know, and there's actors there that play it along and dinner theater. i just wonder how much yeah and i wonder how much of that came from this film well I, I mean i mean obviously something like that it's hard to say but i think it's got to be right because like yeah i mean this movie for it being a movie i mean this is very theatrical this could easily have been a play you know what i mean mm-hmm. and uh yeah i mean i think somebody somewhere along the line was just like Okay, imagine if you're just an audience member in the middle of this watching people. Like, there's no reason why you couldn't just be a spectator there in, like, the middle of all of it. Well, there is, like, there's a weird appeal to it, right? Like, obviously none of us want to be locked in a mansion with a murderer. But watching this film, you do kind of get the idea, like, well, that would be kind of fun to be, like, trying to solve a murder mystery with a group of people, you know? So that's, of course, why people do these parties and go to these kind of, uh, you know, staged events. Yeah, like, when I remember it first taking on, it was probably 15, probably more, probably more than 15 years, probably more than 20 years ago. I remember reading and hearing about it 
<clears throat> always being a dinner theater situation. Mm-hmm. And then it started becoming more of like, as these got more popular, more like an interactive experience where you're just kind of standing in the middle of the room while it's going on, you know? Well, in my head, I feel like I always related to something that started in like the late 80s, early 90s. And that's why I wonder how much Clue had to do with it. And it, that's simply because I feel like I remember a lot of sitcoms doing episodes where the characters right. went to those. I, I definitely remember Save by the Bell episode where they did one. Uh, where they did like a murder mystery uh, mansion kind of thing. And I also feel like where I grew up, I know that there was ones that you could do on train cars. Um, like, a, you know, because obviously Murder on the Orient Express, you know, paying tribute to that. The idea of a murder on a train and trying to figure it out. I think those are kind of still around in different cities, too. That actually be a really cool way to do it, I think, on a train mm-hmm. car. But I, 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 like, I like this. Uh, I really like, uh, and I got to say, like, It'd be even more all-star cast if uh, Carrie Fisher would have made it into this movie. But I really like how uh, Leslie Ann Warren plays the role. And I believe that was the role she was playing. I don't think it was a male inc- or we're supposed to play. I don't think it was. No, you're right. Yeah, it was supposed to be. Yes. Yeah, because like I feel like Leslie Ann Warren, like what I was saying before, like with the way the the women kind of play, like she almost like tries to earn a lot of the guys' trust by kind of flirting in a way, really. Mm-hmm. Like she's constantly like, I don't know, like adjusting her her necklace and her boobs and whatnot. I just liked the moment too where they cut the matches and I just the the, yeah. the subtle physical comedy of Michael McKean taking his little match and like Matt trying to hold it up to like everyone's gigantic match. <laughs> yeah, like I don't, I don't know why, but when I watched this the other night, like I really focused on that scene where Curry's cutting them. I guess mm-hmm. maybe because like I wasn't really trusting him at this point. But, like, yeah, I was really, like, like, how is he going to fuck everybody? <laughs> well, I think, like, you know, we talk about, like, the actual cleverness of this. And, again, we with, we have a character like Yvette, who obviously every guy in the house has been checking out all night. Yeah. Except for Michael McKean's character, who's gay. So it's perfect that they pair those two together, because he has no interest in her that way. Yeah. To totally take away, like, the one advantage she has. Mm-hmm. But I've got to say, too, um... You know, I, I don't know, like, like maybe with a comedy, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't think that you would be too into these scenes where they're, like, checking out the house and trying to figure out if there's, like, another murderer. But, like, the way this movie was shot and everything, I mean, it's, like we said, like, it could be a play, but, it, like, it's a legit, good, atmospherically shot movie. Like, I was, you know, there's, like, a little bit of tension for me when I was mm-hmm. watching all these scenes. They got a, They did a really good job of, um, you know, making these sets look authentic and look like a real house. You know, maybe if you did a movie of this today, the, the, the trick would be making it Clue Master Detective. Did you ever play that? No, I never played that version. Okay, do you know of that? No, not at all. So it was a, it was a later updated version. It's actually the version I still have in my basement. Uh, Clue Master Detective actually added... More rooms, more more murder weapons, and I think four more characters. It was just to kind of try and up the complexity of it. Um, obviously, it never took off, and never like those characters didn't really become iconic because it was. I don't. I feel like even today, when they re-release new versions of Clue, it's never like the Master Detective version. They just kind of went back to traditional Clue. Yeah. But there is a version out there with like more more murder weapons, more rooms, and more characters. Yeah, I remember there was, like, an updated version, and, like, it was kind of, like, a popular thing to do, probably, like, in the early 90s, and, uh, where they would do kind of, like, souped-up, refreshed versions, you know, to get people to, maybe people who liked it as a kid or whatever, to buy, like, another mm-hmm. version. 
Obviously, Monopoly is the most famous version of that with all the different licensing things. Well, but uh, no, Clue definitely still does that because you know there's Simpsons Clue, there's uh, Big Bang Theory Clue, there's <laughs> oh my god, Big Bang yeah, Theory Clue, <laughs> there's there's Doctor Who Clue, and they they definitely still do like license this game out quite a bit. And I also think, as you said, I think it's a game that just even the general version is kind of at least redone every few years. So there's been multiple like drawn versions of these characters, and they they update the visuals of it. I wonder if there was ever a version where the character cards were the pictures of the the movie characters. That would that would be a sh- hell of a collector's item. Yeah, I'm actually going to do a little bit of IT research. I'm curious. That would actually be something if it if I could get it for like twenty bucks or something. I'd actually yeah, be interested. Like really cool thing to have. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. How do you not do that? You know, like that's if that's the case, then Hasbro really dropped the ball on that, right? Like yeah. I know, like I, like we said, the movie wasn't a hit, but they didn't know that at the time. How could they have not had a, a movie tie-in version of the game ready to go when the movie came out? That's like so stupid. Even Battleship got that right. You know? Yeah. Oh, here we go, Trev. Star Wars Clue. It looks like oh, a more course. recent version. Yeah. yeah. The that Star Wars Clue, I believe, is actually three-dimensional because you're on the Death Star. My friend has that. Really? Interesting. Yeah, I yeah. see, like, the little plastic figurines. But, uh, yeah, the version I had... Ooh, Harry Potter Clue. The version I had was... It took me a long time to get it. I think I eventually got it for Christmas one year. But I had played it... Um, like over at people's houses throughout the year. Ooh, supernatural clue. And uh I finally got it for Christmas like around eighty eight or eighty nine. So I, I had like just like the regular version clue classic detective game. I see the box right here. And I actually have it somewhere. I'm still unpacking stuff from my dad's house, but I am not seeing any pictures. I they did make like the cards, like they reproduced the character cards just for like posters or whatever. Mm-hmm. of the actors well the, the end of the movie too the end credits yeah. have those but, like yeah. i think these are just screenshots from that i don't think there ever was legit so stupid yeah so stupid dummies you board game dummies you had a chance to cash in on a movie that wasn't even popular and you blew it <laughs> oh holy shit trev clue now this is like the disney version with like mickey as uh wadsworth and shit but Clue, the Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror version. So you got two freaking like tie-ins going on. You got the Disney people. That's pretty cool. In in they're actually in the Tower of Terror. I love that that idea too when you said like like Mickey's in it because that means that like those Disney characters are dealing with a murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> like Mickey Mouse has to solve a murder. What? A, uh, yeah, I wonder if they dumbed it down. Like if maybe it's like who stole the cookies or something. <laughs> All right, I gotta stop looking at these clue pictures because there's a lot of boobage going on in these uh, promotional photos. It's quite frankly, it's a little bit distracting. <clears throat> what do you, I do? I do like to talk about the game for a moment, though. I mean, it really is one of the, I still think one of the best board games ever. Right? It's yeah. just so much fun, and it's fun in a way like it's not annoying. And it doesn't take forever to play, like Monopoly, no, you know. And it's, but it still is a game that re- does actually require some deductive skills and. It is a fun game to play, and it's. Uh, I don't know where do you fall. Do you, did you ever have like game nights with friends, goat, or? You know, not really. I was, mean, your, was your family a big board game family, or you no? Know, not at all, and really just because my dad worked nights and I was the only child, so like most of the time I played board games was with my mom. Uh, we did have Monopoly quite a few times, and uh, when I was younger, 
and like we live closer my cousin Derek would hang out with us a lot like we would like all be over like my grandpa and grandma's house and stuff so like pretty much all we ever had on hand was Monopoly mm-hmm. and like the game uh, most of the games actually I think I more board games I think more I got like probably when I was like 10 11 and by then like nobody was really around or I don't know why I never really pulled clue out I I think the last time I played a board game was um like around the time the Star Wars special editions came out I bought Star Wars Monopoly and I remember me and a, a friend played it a few times but yeah we weren't big game players honestly other than occasionally Monopoly yeah I didn't get to do much board gaming yeah. I don't know if you're aware of this trend then. You might be um, just from general kind of pop culture knowledge. But at some point in like the last decade or maybe a little bit before, board games really took a turn to where they're like these super complicated strategy games now. Yeah. To where, I mean, it takes, you know, an hour to set up the board and the pieces. If it's your first time playing, it takes two more hours to read the instructions. Then as you play, you have to keep checking back on the instructions. And I know, obviously, there are people who are really into it. I think game nights are kind of, you know, we sell a lot of board games at the Barnes & Noble I work at. And it's I'm talking about those kind of big, complex ones. But there's definitely a part of me that misses just the simplicity of, like, the original board games. Oh, you know, yeah. just the, oh, yeah. like this, like, Clue and, and Life and just the, the basic ones that don't take up an entire evening for one game, you know, because that was kind of the joy of board game nights in the past was you, you, if you had a bunch, you could fit a lot of games in, in one night and not just one, you know? Yeah. One of, uh, the main games, one of the few games I had were like really when I was younger and there was always a lot of people around in the house, kids where it was Candyland. So I played the shit out of Candyland Mm -hmm. with other kids, but yeah, but yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. The type of games now, um, I feel like that whole thing was what you're talking about, that movement to make games like that. Don't you think it was, like, all based on the freaking um, advanced Monopoly rules? Remember how there's, like, a way to play Monopoly with a more advanced set of rules for, like, grown-ups? Yeah. I feel like As if you needed Monopoly to take longer, right? Mm-hmm. Most of my board game knowledge, not playing, but just seeing, was I worked at a toy store. I worked at a Toys R Us from, I guess, late 04 to maybe summer 06. And I think the first year I was, like, I was mainly a stalker. And um, one of the things I really uh, stocked up was the uh, board game section. And holy shit, man. Like, back then, hardly anything was a board game. I mean, it was a board game, but it was, like, all these shitty DVD games. It was, like, the rise of DVD. Do you remember all those from, like, the mid-2000s? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm old enough that I remember the VCR yeah. games back in the day, yeah. What was the first one? It was, like, called Pause It, Rewind It, and, like, you put a tape in, and, like, you watched it. Like, could you imagine how many VCRs got worn out for those games? Because you had to always <laughs> pause it, and, you know, the, the head. There's actually, like, uh, have you heard of that recent film, that recent horror film called Beyond the Gates? Uh, it sounds uh, familiar, but it's no. a, it's a recent. It has Barbara Crampton. It was just from last year, and it's a little, a little indie film. I haven't seen it. Yet, I really want to, but it's actually about somebody finding one of those old like VCR horror games, yeah, like yeah. a like a thrift uh, thrift store or something. It turns out to be like a cursed game, and yeah, I think that I sounds. Did, really I just fun. read about that like two days ago. Yeah, I didn't yeah. Remember, remember the name, but I remember Barbara Crampton was in. I remember it was about like some kids finding a board game like that. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's funny because I wonder how that movie plays to like an audience that doesn't remember that at all. Right? Well, I, I'm I'm thinking like maybe it's more spookier to the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Like maybe a videotape is such an ancient haunted thing to them. You know what I mean? 
Well, that's funny because, like, you know, I just saw I, I saw Rings, the new Ring film, yeah. and uh, you know, you you got that sense of where they're like, well, nobody has VCRs anymore, right? So we right. got to make a big deal about how now this is going to be a digital file. And I just wonder, like, well, I don't know. Maybe there's like a mysterious now. There's a mysteriousness now to a, a VHS tape that maybe is still like <laughs> creepy, you know? Like, I definitely get like the whole point of uh, I've only seen the original The Ring, so like I'm not really like whatever, but like. I think it is actually more like whatever if you do a story where people are more seeking it out and like they have to get a VCR and they have to get a tape and they have to like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Other than like, cause I remember when I like the J horror stuff and I guess, I don't know if they call Korean horror K horror or whatever, but like, I remember that time period of probably, uh, probably Oh seven, Oh eight, where all of a sudden everything was about a self cell phone Mm-hmm. And, like, when it went from, you know, I mean, there are always flimsy premises, but when it went from, like, a tape or an artifact or something physical to, like, just a cell phone, I like, that's when those kind of, you know, I mean, they just, the mileage ran out anyway, but that's when those movies, to me, got real, like, I don't know, not interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we're, here we have the policeman, because he found, actually, the motorist uh, car all, like, up in an embankment a few miles away, so he stops by the house. Here's the point where they actually uh, lock the uh, cop into the study or whatever. I feel like there's like eight or nine dens or studies in this mansion, it feels like. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense because nobody really had like a theater room or a media room back then. So you just had like a lot of lounges and, you know, if you had a mansion, so to speak, you know, the first floor of your house was dining rooms and, mm-hmm. you know, fireplace, maybe like a smoking room. I don't know. I feel like this cop is like kind of a familiar like oh it's uh he's one of those like it's that guy actors from this time period. I definitely feel like he's someone I've seen in other films around the time. Yeah, I, I, I nothing's coming to mind what he was in, but I looked him up there because I was curious about him as well. And uh, he just I, like I think what I from what I read like he just was like a guy who's been in a lot of shit, but I don't think he's like ever been the star of anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to look right now because I'm sure he's in like a lot of shit. But like, I know what you mean. And sometimes you you see people in movies like they're like, oh, this guy's so familiar to me, you know. And it's like you look him up and it turns out like he actually didn't really do much. Yeah. Okay, I think it's Bill Henderson as the cop. Yeah, like he's been he's been in like a ton of shit. Like, uh, let's see. Clue, White Men Camp Jump, City Slickers, Fletch, so a lot of... Uh, oh, City Slickers. I remember him in City Slickers, yeah. yeah. He actually passed away last year at the age of 90, believe it or not. So, Good life. I know. And his last time he was acting was, looks like, 07 in an episode of My Name is Earl. Lots what, a, what a way to go. What a way to, yeah. you know... Lethal Weapon 4, he played the angry patient with urine sample. (laughs) (laughs) I actually remember that. I know what they're talking about. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It it looks like the last time, like, he really had a role where, like, he probably had, like, a real character name was that movie Hoodlum. Uh, He played a guy named Mr. Redman in 97. That was a Lawrence Fishburne movie, if I'm remembering right. This is a fun scene, by the way. I feel like this is one of the more iconic scenes, the idea of having to act like you're having a party with the corpses to fool the cop. And, yeah, I, like, I'll be honest. This is, like, in terms of, like, the physical comedy, this was probably my favorite scene of the movie. Yeah. Like, it's just awesome. Like, 
That one dude's head is like completely split open and they're just like... Oh, yeah. Clue, he played the cop. Let's see. Fletch, he played the speaker. <laughs> oh, he's on different strokes playing the attendant. Like those characters never have names. It's just the thing he does. I kind of, yeah, I kind of wouldn't mind being, I mean, obviously, like, you're probably not making a living, or if you are, you have to do, like, a million freaking movies a year to make it add up, but, like, I almost would like to have been an actor with, like, that type of career, you know what I mean? Well, I think, like, the, I know there are shows, like, uh, dedicated to this, like, a couple, but I think it's interesting, I I, I would love to have a chance to interview those kind of guys, you know, because they've been on all these sets and been around all the actors, and, and, but the thing is, because they're not a name, they can be pretty honest and open about, you know, the things they've seen and experienced. They're not worrying about, you know, you won't have one A-list actor attack another, but yeah. maybe he'll tell you who the actual assholes were. And He's not going to get blacklisted because, I mean, yeah. you know, because at the end of the day, nobody's really going to remember him by name anyway. I'll tell you what, man, like, I mean, I guess that's like the the movie magic part that you don't have anymore because everything's like green screen and shit. But like, I'll tell you what, every time I glance at the, the screen and really look like, it's pretty impressive that this is a, this is a set. Cause mm-hmm. it, it doesn't cry out as a set at all. You know what I mean? Not a set, but I mean, this is another like love of mine, right? Just the idea of, and I, I, I'm a sucker for any story involving a mansion with like secret passageways oh, yeah. and like hidden hallways. I just love that shit. And it's like, you know, to me, it's like, I actually don't have much interest in, this is an easy thing for a middle class person to say, right? I have no interest in living in a mansion, right? But no. I've always like looked at that kind of stuff and been like, that's a lot of space to try to fill, right? And I, what's yeah. the point? But I always thought if I did, I would definitely be like, man, if I'm going to get a mansion, I'm going to get some more people in to build me some secret passageways <laughs> just because of movies like this. Well, I need know, them. Yeah, like, I, you know, I was kind of thinking of this too when I was watching this movie the other night and they're going through all the secret passages. Like, if I was a rich person, so to speak, and like I had a big house, I'd probably. You know, I mean, obviously, like, not if you had kids or whatever, but if it was, like, just me or just whatever, like, I probably would do a secret passage to my bedroom instead of doing that rich person panic room thing. I probably would, mm-hmm. like, I would I would have, a you know, kind of an interior bedroom with no windows. Like, you could sleep any time of the day or, you know, do whatever. And, like, I, I think you would sleep really good being completely shut off like that, you know. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be good for an older person or somebody with a health condition. You wouldn't be all locked away, but... I think that'd probably be the best way to get a good night's sleep and not really care if somebody's robbing your house or breaking in or yeah. whatever, you know? Now, would you have any paintings with the eyes cut out that you could do the old look through the painting at people? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would probably... <laughs> another thing, too, is I probably would have, like, the removable mouth. So, like, not only would I do the eyes, but I could put my mouth up to it and I could talk to people <laughs> through a painting. <laughs> Yeah, this moment right here, like you just said, like, you know, in terms of the direction, like, the this scene is, I know it's, it's, it's this isn't funny, that you know, Yvette's murder here, yeah. but the directing actually feels like something from, like, an 80s slasher or something, the use of light and the darkness, oh, like, great. when she gets killed there, it feels like that could be in, like, Black Christmas or something. Oh, yeah, totally, I mean, totally, you know, looks like something, I mean, the great highlighting, so, I mean, I have to say, too, like, I don't know if it's just the cameras don't pick it up the right way or what, but like you don't see mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of key light highlight lighting yeah. in movies anymore, you know? 
No, and this whole sequence here, I mean, you go from a vet's murder to the cop's murder, and now we have the singing telegram girl. I mean, it's it, we kind of we kind of lose comedy for a bit, and it really just becomes like this. Oh my god, a lot of horrible stuff is happening. Yeah, because we we should say we're like you know, and, it, and this right here gets really kind of kind of over the top funny, but we have Jane Wheedlin from the uh, the Go Go's pop up as a singing telegram person. Like the door just opens and she just gets shot instantly. <laughs> but yeah, there's like a like you know whatever three murders that happen right now, murder spree, and like yeah, I mean, it's you know other than like the seeing telegram thing, like if you cut that chunk out of the movie and just showed somebody like hey, there's this movie, you know, like I think nobody would think oh that's from a comedy, <laughs> you know. What I mean? Yeah, and I have to say, too, is like maybe it's not the digital color grading that they have now or, or whatever. Like, I feel like now when you see, like, a dark scene in a movie, like, it's really dark. And then usually there's just a person with a flashlight shining with a flashlight right in the camera. But, like, mm-hmm. they actually convincingly showed a bunch of dark scenes with the power going out in the house. And you could still see what was going on. You know what I mean? It was really good. Yeah. And this here, this, this is this is silly too. Like what I was talking about earlier, of like them discovering the bodies, and they're just so nonplussed by it now. You know, yeah. just seeing another dead body is just, eh, yeah. <laughs> well, by the time the big murder spree kind of happens, you know, simultaneous murder spree happens. Like they're almost just fatigued by it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're just like, when is this shit going to be over with? Which I mean, obviously, you know. I mean, they have their motivations why they're not doing this, but if it was me, I wouldn't care how bad I was getting blackmailed or whatever happened. I think I just would have run screaming out of this house by now. (laughs) I probably would run screaming by the time the second lady got killed. I'd just be like, okay, the murdering is not stopped. It's just not Mr. Body. (laughs) But then again, you know, Yvette and uh, Miss Scarlet are there, so. Yeah, that is true. It's hard to run out on them. And we're we're, we're kind of coming down the home stretch here, but um, but yeah, like like it it kind of has a nice pace uh, with the way it wraps up here, and we're, we're like we're gonna start getting into all the you know extended explanations and stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'm really curious to watch this with just like one of the endings to see like what it feels like. Well, I think the, though, and I, I think you'll agree that the one of the benefits to this version with the three endings. Um, and I don't know if it was their intention or it was just a kind of happy coincidence or happenstance that the the repetition of certain elements when you watch all three innings in a row does get kind of funny. Yeah, and it oh, kind of yeah. adds to the, the comedy vibe of it. You're seeing the same things play out over and over and over again. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like the old-timey way of just hitting a joke really hard over and over. Mm-hmm. But this is great. I mean, this is where, I mean, yeah, to me this is why when I say this is like, Tim Curry's best character for me, this whole final act where it's just him explaining what happened, the the manic energy that he throws into this whole, like, here's what happened spiel is just fantastic. Yeah, like, he really... And I gotta say, if this had to be remade, I think I want it to be remade by the director of uh, Dogtooth and the Lobster. <laughs> <laughs> just watched The Lobster uh, a night or two ago. Extremely funny movie. Yeah. A little long, I think. Yeah, yeah. like, I don't know if it was really the length or if it was just, like, how miserably dark everything was, but the only Mm. complaint I really had about it was the ending. I I just was hoping for something either more profound or just, I don't know. Mm. 
but, but definitely took a lot of balls to uh, commit to that, doing that movie that way. Colin Farrell. So here we get. I can't believe they got Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz to do such a wacky movie, but yeah. Here we get to see Tim Curry kind of like doing imitations of everybody, you know, recapping the whole movie in a, you know, exaggerated style. An actor showcase. Big time. This really reminds me, I'm going to give my friend a plug here, my friend Adrian Kiwis. He, uh, I saw him do a one-man show one time where it was about a 30-minute one-man show where he portrayed like a family. I'm assuming it was like in an improv setting. Like, I don't know. Like, because I know he does this show quite a bit, but I don't know if it's written or scripted. But he actually did what Tim Curry's doing. It was like a five-person scene, but he played every person. And for like mm-hmm. about 30, 35 minutes, he just jumped <laughs> back and forth into the spots and acting like the different characters. <laughs> but this is, that's actually what this reminded me of when Tim Curry was doing this. What do you think? I want to ask you, what do you think of the score of this film? I thought I thought I thought it was good. I, I'm trying to trying to blank. Uh, who was it that did the score? It's uh, John Morris. Because yeah, it was. Let's see. Because that was another thing I, I looked at. So I actually have the the vinyl release of this that was from uh, a couple years ago. Uh, it was a Mondo release. Really. And it's a very sh- it's a very short score. I mean, it's only about you know forty minutes maybe, so two very short sides. But I just had to get it because, like I said, it's one of my favorite films, and they did like a really kind of cool, nice cover for it. Yeah, and, I was about uh, to ask, what was the cover like? It's a you know a nice like it's a it's a, a drawing of the front of the mansion with Wadsworth standing in the uh, foyer uh, doorway, and then you see silhouettes of other characters in the windows. But uh, really, just a really nice kind of vinyl, and it's it, it's a fun score to put on the background, just because the score even has like this kind of like really peppy, comedic, but like manic energy to it, and just like especially here when it's we're wrapping up and ramping through the explanation of what happened. It's uh, it's not a score that like that's one element where you talk about you know paying tribute to this kind of genre. The score doesn't really sound like something you would typically hear in a murder mystery movie. It's definitely more comedic driven, but. But, but I like it. I think it's it's effective. I think. I mean, unless I'm like misremembering or whatever. Like, if, like what I remember about it was it did a good job of kind of sounding classic to go with the time period, but it's kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of modern too at the same time. Like, man, talk about here we go. Takes forever to find somebody's. Oh, yeah. Wow, this guy did a lot of big scores. Um, Young Frankenstein, The Producers, High Anxiety, uh, Johnny Dangerously. Wow. Clue. Yeah. It looks like he was really like the go-to guy for like kind of comedic movies that are trying to ape a certain other genre, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he did a lot of Mel Brooks stuff. Even like Life Stinks and other stuff. Spaceballs. Oh, Haunted Honeymoon. <laughs> Haunted oh, Hon- another, that's another fun mansion movie. Yeah, I was going to say Haunted Honeymoon. Uh, I didn't really think of it till now, but uh, like Haunted Honeymoon reminds me a lot of this movie. Mm-hmm. I actually, I actually still remember going to see Haunted Honeymoon with my mom. One of the last Gilda Radner uh, movies that I remember. Yeah. 
No, that's mean. You put a lot of you. You put a bunch of characters in like a supernatural, like in a haunted mansion or a mansion that someone's been murdered in, and I'll probably like it. There's just something fun about that whole scenario. Now, this is what I mean about uh, Tom Curry, like really feeling like the narrator of this movie, even though he's actually an active participant in the movie. Like, what did you think in terms of like the storytelling decision to have him? And granted, like we said, if you only saw like the one theatrical version it wouldn't feel like so like he was doing so much but what do you think of him being the guy like the only guy who delivers all the theories and not like in the different cuts having like because like like part of the uh the game is like you know naming the person where they did it and the thing but like what did you think about him being the one who did, who like handled all the things, you know? Well, I think it's great because I mean, you know, first of all, if you are a fan of the game, Wadsworth's not a character from the game. You no. know, he's the he's the addition to the movie, and I think it makes sense in that there's always a butler in these stories, right? And it makes right. sense that the butler would be the guide. And I think just uh, I love the scene with him chasing Mister Green. How put upon Michael McKean is in this whole sequence is so great. Yeah. But uh. But no, I think it's perfect because I don't want to say it's not necessarily that he's the audience identification character, but he is kind of like, you know, if you go to one of these murder mystery nights or whatever, there's always like a host, you know, and that's that's what Wadsworth is. So it, it, it definitely works of him being the narrator and kind of walking us through all the events again here at the end. It's really weird, but that little bit with Michael McKean right there, like I almost feel like his wardrobe and just the, his kind of look overall, I almost, I almost like... I'm surprised I didn't feel this the first time I watched the movie the other night, but like I almost got like a really Austin Powers esque vibe right there. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if there was any correlation with Mike Myers. Like being kind remember of that scary. one weird remember that one uh, weird year where Michael McKean was uh, added to Saturday Live as yes. a cast member? Yes. I was just trying to without looking more bullshit up on the internet, I was trying to figure out was this during his run or did he do that run like right after this? I feel like it was even later than this, wasn't it? Because I remember it being like a like a really odd thing of like he was already super established when he came on. Yeah, well, they're doing that thing too, where they were like, well, there was that one All Star year. It was the year right before Lorne Michaels came back, where they brought in Billy Crystal, uh, Christopher Guest, and Martin Short. But Michael McKean was even after that, I believe. Let's see. I'm trying to find it out. Michael Wait. Keen. Michael, Michael McKean was like a weird thing where he was like an All Star added to a cast that was kind of more, you know, a more standard SNL cast. Yeah. Well, like, um, there was also too, like that time period where they were just like getting, like not necessarily people who had stage performance, like experience, but they were just getting people like Downey Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall, just people who were like in comedy movies. And like, I actually, because I loved those guys in movies at the time when I was a kid, I loved their short little, like one year run they had. But uh, I know a lot of people fucking hate it. <laughs> I I hate it. I, I've, I've given. I've I, yeah. I've tried to go back because I have the SNL app. You know, I've I've gone back and tried really? to watch some of it, and I still think that's maybe the worst year of SNL. Really. Well, I know the writing was pretty. In all honesty, it was pretty yeah. bad that year. No, I just looked at. So yeah, this is it's. Michael McKean joined the SNL cast in 1994. Damn, he was on. From, he was late? on. Yeah, yeah, he was on the 94 95 season. Yeah, so that's I what I mean. Like he was in high school. Yeah. Yeah, at eight, at the age of forty six, he was the oldest person to ever join the SNL cast at the time. Yeah, I, I, he he had a couple of appearances as himself slash David St. Hubbins in eighty four. I guess that was a like a Spinal Tap tie in somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was that was weird. 
But and what a weird like decision because like to me like I you know we love Michael McKean and I think a lot of people oh, do, but awesome. that's not who I would think of to be like man we need to spice we need to spice up SNL let's get a big comedy all star oh Michael McKean that'll draw on the ratings. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wondering but, if that was the, also the uh, Janine Garofalo year. It, it almost feels like it time. almost feels like if you make that decision, it's like you're acknowledging that we just need somebody like we need a seasoned pro in here to be a mentor to these people. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, we just need a guy. I was thinking more like we just need a performance guy. But at that point, I mean, I guess he kind of always was. But at that point, I know Lauren Michaels was really hitting hard. Just read the cue cards. I don't want actors at all. And I think SNL still kind of suffers. Like, I wish they would have a showrunner or somebody who would, you know, kind of blend blend those two things together. Well, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens when Lauren Michaels is finally out of there. Because obviously yeah. the show will live past him. But whoever the next person is, what kind of their what their take will be on it. Yeah. I mean, I will say to, like, I was just, I don't know why this has suddenly become an SNL discussion, but Everybody I will say to Lauren Michaels. 80s. Yeah. To, to Lauren Michaels credit. Oh, here we go. Here's the, here is the kind of known figure who pops up. Yeah. Um, big, big so old we get good old double H. <laughs> yeah. Howard Hessman. Uh, um, but yeah, to Lauren Michaels credit, you know, for, yeah, the show goes through phases of good and bad, but that is a dude who has definitely, you know, as old as he is, Definitely, his his he's been willing to evolve with how comedy evolves. You know, totally. Yeah. So even like he like you can tell like he recognizes why something like the Lonely Island is funny or these more weird kind of esoteric YouTubeish humor kind of comedy I mean, things. And I mean, that's not true of a lot of older people. You know. No. Yeah. I mean, well, it's like I mean, granted, this was a long time ago, but he was no spring chicken when he kind of shepherded along the kids in the hall. You know, and that was for the time period. Kid, like it's it's kind of easy now to like not remember, but Kids in the Hall was seen as really experimental comedy when it first came on HBO. You know, yeah. But no, yeah, like I love SNL, and I was like pretty much my history was you know when I was young, like I remember just other people or whatever. Like you know, it was such a like whatever the Eddie Murphy run. So I saw bits of that. I was really into it during like the mid eighties when it got really weird with guys like Anthony Michael Hall. I think I probably was watching more for the first time, seriously, like around the time Anthony Michael Hall was on and stuff. And then like, of course me and my friends, man, like even during the summer we would, uh, when it was reruns, we, we do sleepovers on the weekends just so we could watch SNL together. So like the whole Dana Carvey era, and then, like, I watched it all the way through high school, and pretty much I dropped out of it, like, probably late 90s, like the Will Ferrell era. And, like, I was out of it for a long time, and uh, old Phil D's, man, he never, you know, he's always cracking beers on a Saturday night. He never gave up on it, and I pretty much got into it, got back into it, like, maybe five or six years ago, just hanging out at his house on the weekends, and, like, I don't care how bad it gets or how whatever, because it's just such a thing for my youth, and there's really nothing else on TV like it. Like, I'm going to watch SNL, so, like, I've, whatever, the last five, six years, um, I've seen every episode, I DVR it, whatever, you know? Like, unfortunately, a lot of the people that, like, usually I like the people who come on as featured performers, and then they all, like, guys like Paul Britton, whatever, and know Andy Samberg and whatever and like they come and go like they never really take the show over but I don't know it's still worth watching I feel like it's been I feel like it's been there's been it's been a really long time since there's been a bad cast I feel like I've liked all the casts for the last you know couple decades and it's always been if it's a bad season it's it's a writing thing I feel like the cast has been at least like when I watch because like honestly like 
I kind of got, like, burned out. I mean, I, I like Will Ferrell. I don't mean, like, just whatever. But, like, kind of when he was the star of the show, it kind of got stale to me. And, like, the Kristen Wiig era, a lot of it was kind of stale to me. Like, I just don't like it, like, even if they're great. Well, yeah. I don't like when one person dominates the right. show. Yeah. yeah, I don't like it when it's like a one person show and uh And I was actually really worried about that happening with Kate McKinnon now, but it seems like they're 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 not quite all the way there yet. But. Well it's really weird too, because for some reason like like after his first year, like Taron Killam got like a huge push. And he was this like the star of the show, even though nobody really like whatever. And then like I guess because he was getting involved in other projects that so was pissing Lauren Michaels off, he cooled off the last couple of years and then it kind of became now, now it's now it's really like the female show, and like I don't blame them because just from a like success standpoint, they're still chasing, they're trying to replicate, I guess the uh, the Kristen Wiig, you know, female driven era, and obviously people are really standing up a lot for females in entertainment right now, and like I get it, but it's like I'll watch a million sketches with like Kate McKinnon, but like. And even like Cecily Strong and stuff like, but I I don't need like all this eighty Bryant. I don't need all this like these other people. Oh, I, I like eighty Bryant a lot. Really? Yeah. She, she. I just feel like she's so one note to me. Like in her characters. I really like Vanessa Bayer too. You know, Vanessa Bayer took a long for a long time for many years. I thought Vanessa Bayer was worthless, and uh, she's. I think the last three years she's really. Showing her versatility, and like that's how SNL is. You sign like a seven-year contract, and it usually takes mm-hmm. a few years for you to get your bearings and whatnot. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, some of the guys on there you hardly ever see. Yeah, it's just so, so female-driven, and, and you know it depends on who the host is. I don't want to see like and kind of what the mood is. Sometimes the 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 female like majority thing like really works, and sometimes it just kind of like you just end up with a lot of you know whatever similar sketches so here we had our first ending which was the miss scarlet is the the culprit ending and i think maybe that's my favorite one in all honesty yeah i kind of like the whole interplay with uh, leslie warren with the uh the gun and everything Now, what do you think of the kind of hard cut to, like, the old-timey title card and being like, oh, maybe it really happened this way or whatever it said? <laughs> I like it, cause, but, I mean, again, like, you might, it's going to, anything you ask me, I'm probably just going to be like, oh, I like it, because this movie was so, such a childhood favorite, you know? But uh, but also, I, I, I just wonder, I, geez, I don't know when I started watching, like, silent films and stuff, you know, as I got more interested in cinema, I wouldn't be surprised if this title card right here is kind of the first time I ever saw that that kind of approach, you know, like that old timey kind of title card. And you could tell that it's like a total freeze frame at the end where the chandelier drops on Martin Mall, like acts like it, it didn't, it fell right behind him, but he kind of like jumps, like it went up his ass. kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Just the multiple. I mean, it's, you get to see like a lot of different stuff, but I don't know. Maybe it's just too jarring for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just need one in the, but then again, if I always watch it with one ending going off now for, you know, because it's random or whatever, and, you know, I, I could go possibly years without seeing one or two of the endings. Yeah. This is my least favorite. I don't, yeah. the, uh, Miss Peacock one just, I don't know, never really quite clicked for me. Yeah. Well, um, I've read a little bit, um, as we're going through the endings here, the, the one, the, I think the fourth ending, which they actually never used. Uh, I don't know if you read about it, but it was the one where it was actually... I did, yeah. Yeah, it was actually uh, 
Wadsworth. Like, would, would you, would you, I mean, obviously they claimed it was bad quality, like nobody really liked just the way it happened or whatever, but what do you think of that theory of it just being him, you know? Uh, I like it. I mean, I, I would want to, I'd want to see it in execution, you know, yeah. I, but it would feel appropriate just to have, you know, because, because what we were just talking about with Wadsworth being kind of the de facto main character, um, I do think, though, that's the reason. So the, the, my thing with the Miss Peacock one is she's just she's played throughout the whole film as, you know, the the kind of scattered brained old lady. Yeah. And so I guess that's like the, the swerve of this one, right, that she's actually yeah. this kind of calculating evil person. But I just don't really I don't think it works. I don't think that character I don't buy her the, the, the sudden turn on that. But uh, my favorite ending definitely is the third one, because I think it is the one that feels like the most, um, you know, it's, it's the one where everybody did it, you know. Right. And it feels like it's the ending that feels the most thematically in, t- in tune with what the movie was. And I feel like if they had to have chose just one ending to run with before they released it, I'm guessing that would have been the one because everybody kind of gets their moment, you know. Like, if for like I'm actually surprised that I'm, I'm surprised that if you're going to film three different endings, I'm surprised they didn't just go all the way and give every character, you know, yeah. an ending. Where... I'm wondering if. Um... You know, obviously, you know, just even to do this, you know, the way they did it with the different innings or whatever, even to do it this way, I had to be kind of logistically hard and whatnot. It was shipping the prints and doing this and organizing who gets what. Because I know a lot of times for years there's always talk of doing like an NC-17 version of a certain movie at the same time the R and like, and like they could never do that. Cause they were like, well, we can't have two like whatever versions of the movie at the same time or whatever, or doing like a PG-13 and an R of a, the same movie. So like, I'm really kind of impressed that they did this in 1985, you know, all these different versions with the, the final reel going out to different theaters and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it was just a logistics thing. Cause I mean, obviously they didn't, I mean, they, they claim they didn't want to do the fourth ending cause they didn't like how it turned out. But I think probably even three endings logistically probably would have been hard to actually do a release, yeah. you know, I think now I'll tell you what, if this, if they did this today and like the both endings had one of the women being the murderer, people would be calling this movie sexist. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> yeah. I, but oh, I, why has it got to be the female characters, right? Yeah, what, like what, like whatever, like if they did it now, like whatever, like I don't know, like what, whatever ethnicity or whatever sexual, like whatever orientation or whatever the character, it'd be like, why would it have to be the lesbian character? Why would it have to be the Asian character? Yeah, everybody would just read way too much into it. But I, but I think you are right in terms of like the third ending, you know, because it says, but here's what really happened, but. If for some reason they couldn't have done the multiple whatever endings gimmick and the studio had to settle on like one, I think they probably, you know, because this was intentional. I think they probably would have picked this third ending just to release everywhere. But you yeah. know, it, it it almost seems like you know because with movies now we're so used to the endings being reshot two three times before they finally make it to the theater. Like it almost feels like this could have been like like they were just like fuck it, we'll just shoot a bunch of different endings and pick it because it actually happens a lot now. And uh, I guess because of franchise reasons or whatever, they don't want to ever release the different versions. But I think it'd be actually be logistically easier now with digital prints and DCPs and things streaming off of servers and whatnot at theaters. I think this would actually be a lot easier to pull off now than it was back then even. But yeah, like when you watch all three endings, though, it is 
like you said, you, you get the 50,000 scenes of everybody running mm-hmm. from, from room to room and whatnot. Tim Curry does keep up the energy, though. We have all the key swapping gimmicks and whatnot. And it's like if this is the ending you go with in your head, it, it you know not that it, not that it matters for this kind of film. This isn't a Fight Club scenario where it's like, oh, let's rewatch the film and see how everything's different now. Right. But the idea that as you're watching the film, all of these people are actually committing murder and they're all kind of villainous is kind of you know it's 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 rewarding in a fun way. It's kind of the easiest one to swallow in terms of just logistics of all mm-hmm. how all the murders were carried out, you know. But but even you know that layer reality really doesn't well and see this is this is the ending that gives us this moment too which is a very this is the moment i was talking about earlier this speech the uh the flames flame speech from adeline khan is just such a great moment and like one of my favorite all-time adeline khan moments and you actually would still see people uh, use that as a gif a lot when they're uh, kind of trying to talk about some like lady they hate. Really? They'll, they'll throw that. At, yeah, yeah, I've seen that gift pop up a lot with her talking about Yvette in that moment. Yeah, I, I think this actually be a really fun type of movie to do for an actor, where you just get to shoot all these different endings and mm-hmm. you know. But this is one thing I didn't read in the research, but I'm just curious about. It. Like, I would think. I guess maybe it wouldn't matter because everybody's in the same clothes and shit, but I would think it would actually really help to shoot this actually pretty much in order. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And why not? You know, if you It's all one set. Yeah. You're not, like, losing locations, which is usually why you do shoot out of order, you know? Mm-hmm. One set, the entire cast is together the whole time. No reason not to. And best of all, probably everybody every night got to go home and sleep in their own beds. <laughs> Because they shot in Hollywood on the soundstage. I don't know. I think this ending has like the best final button too, in terms of the Mister Green reveal. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like the more cohesive, like finite ending, I should say. Well, I think it's interesting because if there's any character who does seem kind of in the background for the whole movie, in terms of like the featured players, it is Mister Green. So then to have this ending reveal him as the ultimate hero of the film, I think is a nice, like, little, you know, touch. Yeah. It definitely, you know, it, it, it like, in a way, too, yeah, because they reveal all along he was, you know, undercover or whatnot, but, like, mm-hmm. I feel like, in a, in one way, this is, like, actually the most uh, traditional Hollywood ending as well. I hear a crying baby. But we, this almost tell you tell you what this also reminds me of is that video game Night Trap. <laughs> oh my god! How there's like like that game like the end. There's always like the, well I guess really the whole game, but there's always the the cops or whatever they are, the SWAT team. They're always outside watching. I always felt like that's how it felt like. Like, I mean, obviously there was, like, the backup being called or whatever, but, like, you know, in all the endings when Howard Hessman kind of burst in, it always feels like they've been, like, standing outside that door for, like, an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just allowing people to be murdered just to <laughs> <Yes>. kind of... <laughs> Howard Hessman, another one. 
he, I, I, he probably had like a whopping what? What would you say? Four days of filming, if that. On the no, oh yeah, if that, yeah. yeah. And I got to say this end part here, the uh, the closing credits, like it's like the coolest where they have the game cards and stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. Around. Yeah. No, I would like I said, I would love to have an actual an actual set of those. Yeah. It'd be a great thing to like put together and get framed if you had them. You know. Oh yeah, big time. You know, there used to be a lot of really cool uh, movie promotional swag in the 80s and 90s. Kind of surprised they didn't print these up. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff that got sent out to, like, video stores and theaters and things. I guess because there's no actual physical place for anything anymore. We're really missing Mm -hmm. out on the swag in the modern era. Whatever happened to uh, that? Uh, there was supposed to be like a Ridley Scott was supposed to do, do a Monopoly movie. Do you remember that? Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, it fell apart, and like from what I understand, it almost uh, sounded like it was going to be like a uh, a weird adaptation of like Oliver Stone's Wall Street or something. Like, yeah, like it, it didn't sound like like it sounded like they were really going for like a hard edge drama with it. Well, that's the thing with a lot of these games, you have to work kind of hard to justify why you're even doing it, right? That's why Clue is the the natural one, because there is a story. But uh, do you remember a few years ago there was talk about a Candyland movie that was going to be like a Lord of the Rings kind of take on Candyland? I do remember the movie. I didn't really remember the details of it. Yeah. But, I mean, so, why, so was... why not, though? Uh, wouldn't Candyland, the movie, be a lot like um, Sam Raimi's Return to Oz or whatever it's called? Well, I feel like I wonder if what kind of killed it was that uh, I actually feel like Wreck-It Ralph um, just kind of beat him to the punch, you know, because that whole like there is that whole the majority of Wreck-It Ralph actually exists in a Candyland like world and kind of already hit on a lot of the jokes. I'm sure they would have been they would have been going for or at least visual aspects. Yeah. Yeah, because like the uh, actually own that movie and never watched it. I think I'll actually watch it now that I have a new kind of killer Three, oh, Rooker Alpha is really good. Yeah, it's no clue. One of the best comedies of all time. But I don't know why, but I did, like now I just want to call it Cluedo all the time. <laughs> I don't <laughs> even want to say Clue. I want to say Cluedo. From the makers of Play-Doh and Clue come Cluedo. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. There's just you know I don't have to dive into it. Uh, you know I got to return my rental copy here to Netflix, but. Uh, Order me up a Blu-ray somewhere, and uh, I really look well. As I to, said you know, to you the other night, though, I mean, this is a film that's really begging for a, a nice, like, special edition Blu-ray, yeah, right? Like those, like, kind of Shout Factory selects that are out there now. Like, this would be a yeah. perfect one. I think the only problem being, it is, um, uh, I don't know who owns it now. I'm not sure if Paramount still owns it or if it's. For some reason, I thought maybe Universal owned it now, which would be a problem. But yeah, that Hasbro, whatever it was. Partly, they were making movies with Paramount, like the Transformers, and then actually Battleship was uh, Universal. But, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. But I would think, you know what? I think the probably reason we haven't got like some better release of this is because Paramount doesn't seem to really license their shit out for whatever yeah. weird reason. Yeah. Almost every other studio is doing it. But, I, but, but I, this is what I'll do, Trev. So you can have your special edition of Clue from Shout Select. I'm going to buy the current existing Bare Bones Blu-ray. And then I'm not All going right. to watch it for a year. And then before <laughs> I can even, like, watch it, like, then the special edition will come out. 
Okay, good. Thank you for taking one for the team. Because <laughs> that's what happens to me all the freaking time. Like, uh, I bought the uh, the Blu-ray of Red Dawn, whatever, when it came out two years ago. Uh, never watched I mean, I've owned the DVD forever. I've seen that movie so many damn times. Um, I don't think I've ever watched the Blu-ray, other than, like, throw it in, check it out, or whatever. And, uh, yeah, now we get the uh, special edition. <laughs> Same with my RoboCop box set. I, I never wa- I bought the RoboCop box set, like, maybe a year and a half, maybe two Black Fridays ago. Never watched either one. And now we get the Shout Factory uh, or Screaming Factory. Or, yeah, yeah. Shout Select. Uh, well, it's like you want them to get this Clue one done while they still have some cast members around to talk about it. You yeah. Know? And I think these people probably would be the kind of people that, like, if you just <coughs> – we're vigilant and worked around their schedule. I, bet, like, well, I, I know. Like I know a few Mall years ago. Yeah, I know a few years ago. I can't remember if it was like AV Club or Esquire or Vanity Fair. Somebody did a really good kind of in-depth oral history of this movie, nice. talking about like the kind of the resurrection of it that kind of created like you know it being a cult phenomenon after it failed. And uh, yeah, it was a really interesting read and a, like a nice long kind of sustained one. Um, I'm also online right now and I'm, I'm reading about the remake and it says that the one in the one in 2011 that almost happened was going to be directed by Gore Verbinski. Um, that that actually kind of might have been good. Well, it definitely be it would definitely be visually interesting if nothing yeah. else, you know. And it says now, uh, according to Wikipedia, it says in August 2016, the tracking board reports that Hasbro has landed at 20th Century Fox. Uh, Josh Feldman producing for Hasbro Studios and Ryan Jones serving as executive producer. And they're apparently pitching a new version of this that they say would be a worldwide mystery with action adventure elements, potentially oh. setting up a possible franchise. So I don't know what that really means. I don't know how you turn Clue into a worldwide mystery with action adventure elements. That sounds more like Carmen Sandiego. Yeah, or I think those are just key words that you have to say to a studio. And then at the end of the yeah. day, it's, it's just still people in a mansion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't overthink Clue. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not. Well, well, somebody apparently, uh, since the the movie is technically over, I don't mind kind of divulging into some other topics real quick. But like, uh, somebody really overthought a property called Friday the Thirteenth, and for oh, like geez. what was it, yeah. three, four years, Paramount could not make a Friday the Thirteenth movie, and now because the rights are going back to New Line, I guess they will not be making one at all. Like, I, like I don't get it. These cheap movies that could be done cheaply and, and really well. The studios I just, can't uh, figure it out anymore. Yeah, I was just thinking in my head of like what would happen if like you know because we've all seen where some property gets bought and then it somehow gets turned into like a really mangled version of it. Yeah. Um, the but the best example, of course, being like something like the Super Mario Brothers movie or something, right? Yeah. But how could you go like? How could you get really off base with Clue? And I was just picturing yeah. in my head a version where you have like these young versions of the characters, right? Like the young Miss Scarlet and the young yeah. Professor Plum. And they'd be all. They would actually be teaming up to solve mysteries, right? Like all the clue characters would <laughs> put the mystery solving team. Yeah, yeah, I can see that shit. I know it's uh, fairly late in your time zone, so I wrap this up. But I just, I just happened to because we talked a lot about movies that did not happen or tried to happen, and this is actually a movie that technically did happen, but I don't know if we'll ever see it. Uh, what's your take on? A mystery movie called Leatherface, uh, or whatever the fuck it's called, where it's about three crazy people that break out from a mental hospital. Uh, They kidnap a nurse, and then the mystery of the movie is which of these three people will grow up to be Leatherface. Now, this is actually a movie 
This is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, you know, sequel, tie-in, spin-off, prequel. I don't know mm-hmm. what you want to put it. But this is a movie that's actually shot. has some people like Steven Dorf in it. It, it might not be too legitimate because it was shot in, like, Bulgaria or somewhere. But uh, this was out, you know, I, I, I just was doing a checkup on this because I heard about this. I was like, did they really ever make this? Did they really ever? It was shot in May of 2015. And yeah, we it's sitting on the shelf for a while, yeah. We don't even have a release date. Mm-mm. Now, are so, you relieved? I mean, What's your take on it? I mean, every t- ever since that's been announced and I heard the basic idea of it, it sounded kind of terrible to me because I don't – we know who Leatherface is. Right. I, I, don't, I don't need him to be anything other than the, you know, the slow brother of the Sawyer family, you know, and the idea that he's not that, that he's some other like, – you know, he's some um, other – yeah. Yeah, he's like this kid who, what, is he going to be like adopted by the Sawyers at the end or whatever? It's like, who cares? Why do we need that backstory? Um, that said, will I see it when it eventually gets dumped out there somewhere? Of course. Yeah. You know, I watched all of these Texas Chainsaw movies. I'm a sucker for that franchise. Uh, I like the directors who made it. They're the guys who did Inside. Right. And so that's that gives me the slightest bit of hope, right? And then I've heard, I mean, I've, I take it for, totally take it with a, like a grain of salt. But the few people who have seen it, apparently this, the talk has been that it actually is a lot better than you would think. Right. But but who knows, right? Yeah. But I mean, I just don't I just don't get that concept. And I think that's another series where you know, we've talked about this before. You know, we've we've definitely talked a lot about Texas Chainsaw. But anytime you do a new one, you kind of have to overthink it because there's just a simplicity to the overall story of that franchise. And it's and, been kind of replicated so many times. The yeah, sequels. and that's what, you know, and I, I like the remake, and that's still what I advocate, is I think they should just, instead of trying to do sequels and everything, we have to come up with, like, this weird version of continuity or new takes on it like this. I, I still would just be down for every 25 or so years, like, a new version of the original that's just kind of like, hey, this is the version that represents what's going on in mm-hmm. cinema right now, right? So that, that's kind of like what some of the sequels tried to do, like with part three and whatnot. They just were to introduce like a new family. But yeah, I was just because like the thing is, is like when I when we first heard about this project, whatever it's called, Leatherface, whatever it's called, this new film, uh, I thought it was just going to be like some lame, like here he is as a little boy, here he is growing up. And then like when I checked on it the other day, and I'm like, it's actually a, like how like narratively, how are they going to like there's three young mental patients whatever doing crimes kidnapping a woman doing whatever i'm sure they're all going to be like equally like nefarious or whatever you know Mm -hmm. and i was just like how are you going like that's the mystery of the movie you gotta guess which one grows up to be yeah and why would any like why would any of them be right because if they're going to be like kind of like cognizant enough to be characters in a film where i'm guessing they're going to talk to each other and kind of like that doesn't feel like leatherface right because the whole thing about leatherface is that you know, you don't want to call him a victim, but the only reason he is what he is is because he was raised by this family that taught him this is the only way, you know? Yeah. Like So, I don't know. Like, I'm, like, I'm not the biggest fan of the, um, the, the Michael Bay produced ones, the, you know, the massacre in the beginning or whatever. But mm-hmm. I think, like, going forward, and, and uh, I, I like the 3D one, but that's also another one where the story ends. There's really nowhere else to go. Like, I actually like, and I was curious what you thought. What do you think about just, you know, because the rights are the rights, but, like, even at this point, I feel like people are more familiar with the Michael Bay produced film than they are even 3D that came out a couple years ago. What do you think about just doing a straight-up sequel to the Michael Bay remake 
and kind of doing like how they did like with that comic book you were talking about where he had to like learn how to do whatever like you know being like an amputee and shit you know what I mean like, well, I, I mean I don't know why they didn't do that in the first place I never got why they I, I think they really shot themselves in the foot by doing the prequel instead of a yeah. sequel because I think you were just you were hampering it to where everyone knew how that ended and it just like it, who cares right there was more there was definitely a more interesting direction to explore with say hey if you really want to put your own your own like stamp on the series then make a kind of sequel that they haven't done before instead you do a prequel and you just made another remake basically yeah yeah and then even with the 3d approach um which was like trying to be i guess well it was supposed to be a direct sequel to the original i'm just like you got the rights like there's no as far as i know there's like no separate rights from like the michael bay films to just doing the name proper like you just do a loose whatever and like show him with his injuries that he got while he's chasing jessica beale and you know i think that would have been probably the even more financial success yeah i don't know i mean to me really the continuity is just the first film and to and toby hooper's sequel everything yeah. else is just kind of like a bonus anyways it's all dreams <laughs> fan yeah. fiction dreams <laughs> But yeah, man, I want to thank you for uh, bringing this movie to my attention. It's a, it's definitely one that I not only enjoyed, but it's piqued my interest where I know for a fact I'll be going back to it, you know, probably pretty soon once I pick up the Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad we could pick something that, like, in a weird way, like, I feel like this movie's kind of super obscure, but in a way it's not, because, like, it's always been around and I've always known about it, and I just, mm-hmm. you know, like, and obviously, like you said, it has had a resurgence more yeah. of a cult thing on video. Yeah, I think it's a film like if you meet someone who has seen Clue, chances are they love Clue and they're really into yeah. it. But I do think there's a lot of people who just maybe haven't even watched it for the first time yet. So yeah. hopefully this will get a few new fans to to join the cult and and then maybe we can finally get that that Blu-ray. Exactly, special edition. So yeah, so thanks for joining me, Trev. Everybody, thank you for all by the way our like little download numbers, especially for the older films. I mean, older you know shows we've done. Uh, it, it's it's crazy to me that this podcast has been rolling wrong for a year and a half, almost two years, and we're still every week we're still getting downloads on the very first episode we ever did. So I want to thank everybody for that. It seems like there's like a word of mouth type thing going on, or maybe people are finding us for one particular episode and then going back and listening to our old stuff. So thank you, everybody. Um, you know. There's lots of ones, me and Corey, me and Trev, you know, just, you know, Corey's kind of been doing his um, uh, celebrity interviews lately, but uh, we're working on a a show to do, me and Corey, episode to do. So Corey will be back. Don't worry, everybody. Just, you know, me and Trev kind of just wanted to go down the back roads a little bit with some of these films we've been knowing recently, some of these obscure ones. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll dig up some more obscure shit and uh, keep listening to Ikeny's Movie Graveyard. Check us out, Facebook, everything. Check out uh, Trev. You've been getting actually a little more regular with If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It, haven't you? Yeah, we've been getting a little better at that. We've got, uh, you know, we did a couple episodes in a row there, and we're working on the next one, which we'll probably record next week. Uh, we'll have a uh, a Resident Evil spectacular coming up soon, since Bird has now seen the entire series. We both checked out the new one. I can't wait for and, that. Can't yeah. wait. And then we've got some, uh, we finally got some, uh, finally, after years of talking about it, it sounds like we actually have some uh celebrity interviews coming up and i mean celebrity in the realm that we care about you know but still good enough anybody more famous than us is a celebrity in my yeah yeah exactly so yeah so check that out check out 
uh, X-Men Days of Future Podcast, Examining the X-Men, really, really, uh, I don't know, like, it's really, I have to say, you guys, you and Joe, you guys have taken that with what could have been, like, a really monotone podcast, and I'm a few episodes behind, but you guys go off in some nice directions, I like it, and obviously, I really like when there's uh, some developments in the the movie world, and you can talk about it and whatnot, Yeah. yeah, but a quick, quick question. Uh, from your comments on uh, kind of the year-end wrap-up that you did on If It Bleeds and some of the stuff I heard you say on um, uh, the X-Men show, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, getting the, I'm getting the vibe that you're you're ready to see Brian Singer walk away from the X-Men franchise. Is that true? No, no, no. My vibe is more if Brian Singer wants to walk away, okay. Okay. If Brian Singer wants to stay, I feel like he's earned the right to stay because even though I wasn't a huge fan of Apocalypse, I've liked most of it. I've liked his other films in the series. Uh, I guess my take is more. I kind of feel like it's it's the right time for him to maybe become like the godfather of the franchise and be there in like an in like an advisor role, like a producing role, and maybe get some some other people to direct. Basically, like what he did with First Class, you know. Yeah. That would be probably be where I would stand, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shed a tear if he decides to walk away. Does that make sense? No, yeah, I mean, totally, but I but I'm not like yeah, get his ass out of there. I don't <laughs> feel like I don't feel like Apocalypse like I I don't I don't want to tar and feather him after that. It just seemed like a misstep, you know. I mean, I, I mean, my, by far, I think Days of Future Past is a better film than Apocalypse. Yeah. But yeah. Apocalypse caught a lot of shit, and I gotta be honest, man, like I. I like it a lot. I, I like. I bought it right away when it came out. You know, so. Well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I see what he's doing. Like, because I feel like he can't come up with the storylines as quick as the studio wants him to do movies. So I mm-hmm. think he's going to have to rely on just like pumping out more action-filled versions of the stories. Like, if that makes any sense. Like, I think, yeah. I think either by him like being rushed or maybe just the studio demands. Like I feel like the franchise is going to, the further films are going to get bigger and bigger, like the actual X-Men films. And then like kind of like the Wolverine films will be more smaller scale, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess my thing is uh, my, my larger concern about the franchise right now is I'm not as much worried about what's going to have a singer as I just want Fox to figure out what the hell they're even doing at that franchise. And like, yeah. and in terms of like, in terms of the interconnectedness of all of it. And because really, as Joe and I have said it on days future podcast, there is no reason that this shouldn't be like the MCU right now. You have oh, multiple yeah. like franchises to play with and it, it, it shouldn't be that hard to link them up. And I feel like, again, we, we we're just talking about like overthinking things. I think Fox has kind of, you know, overthought this franchise a little bit in terms of timelines and how everything links together. And I say, like, you hire Joe or I or, you know, another dedicated X-Men fan to sit down for like a weekend. And I bet you we can plot this all out for you and get it figured out. But I don't know what's what's the hold up with them. Well, like, I I find it very strange because it's like they're doing like another reboot in terms of Apocalypse gave us all these younger versions of the characters. So you think, oh, Mm -hmm. that's where they're going. But then it seems like McAvoy and Fassbender are kind of done. So you really can't go. I forward. think I don't think I, I think McAvoy is in the in for the long haul. Actually, I so. yeah, I, I think you can so. totally do movies with that. So because they can't figure out what time period or what cast or whatever they want to do, I almost think because there's such a wealth of characters in X Men, I almost think they should take a Star Wars approach where they start doing trilogies and then like in between the trilogies, there's just been a long time past. So like mm-hmm. you know how like Force Awakens opens up with all these new people like Kylo Ren and Ray like. 
even if you have to break the timeline continuity of the comics, I feel like you just have to be like, okay, now it's 10 years later, 20 years later, and here's a whole new group of people. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But I don't know. We'll see. Just I just wanted to hear your take because I was just like, mm, I think my boy's finally <laughs> turning on. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think it, no matter how you feel, but I think once we start getting things like Josh Boone's New Mutants and, you know, another Deadpool and then an X-Force, I think it'll be it'll probably be even better for Brian Singer, right? Because if he's putting out an X-Men film every few years, but there's unrelated X-Men films that he didn't direct in between, it, it takes the pressure off of him, you know, to just be. Oh, yeah. The only thing going in the franchise, so. Well, I mean, I, we'll see. I, I, I like Brian Singer a lot as a filmmaker. I really like stuff like Usual Suspects and Valkyrie, and like I just don't get the feeling that he can really keep up with this quick franchise pace. Yeah, you know what I mean. But, I, I mean, I do want to. I, I do want to see his version of Dark Phoenix, you know, because I feel like he did want to do it and he kind of got screwed out of it. So I think he deserves to be able to do that if he still wants to. Yeah, like I don't because I always see. I mean, I like X three, even though nobody does, but like I don't count that as like. I don't know. Like I felt like you yeah, like what you're saying. I felt like he he's done the build up for the Dark Phoenix and he never got to do it. So yeah, you know. And I I'd actually would be even though I like X three, I'd actually be willing to see it done with a different take on it. So whatever. well, yeah, like the real take. Yeah, <laughs> like well, yeah. I, I mean something that's yeah fleshed out. You know what I mean? Not yeah you know, in the background. But yeah, sorry to diverge us into X Men territory, no, but I, yeah. hey, y'all always talk about X Men, obviously. But. <laughs> but yeah, I was just curious about that. So everybody, thanks so much for uh, listening. Thank you for supporting 1980s Movie Graveyard, and we will see you soon with some new thanks. crusty movies. Yeah, take care. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.